This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, February the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. <coughs> You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, fierce night here in the city of St. John's with the wind and the rain lashing against the bedroom window. Very much unlike those soft, rainy nights, which really helps you sleep. The exact opposite last. I'm going to get to some weather-related matters here now in a second. Good to see the NHL back on the ice. We're hoping Alex Snook makes his return to the Montreal Canadiens lineup this week. Looks like he's on track. But understandably so, a lot of the world's eyes regarding hockey around the London, Ontario courtrooms where the five junior players who were members of the 2018 National Junior Team made their first court appearance yesterday. News conference held by the chief of police and the lead detective on the case. First things first, an apology to the victim. You know, when they investigated initially, there was you know, not enough evidence apparently to lay charges. We're not entirely sure what has changed. But all these years later, six years later, five of the boys have been appeared in court court and we'll see where the case goes from here so anyway it's got to happen go through that court proceeding so I guess we people have been asking about, about uh, preparations for the 2025 Canada Summer Games to be held here in St. John's and surrounding area, less than 500 days away from the games. Some 5,000 volunteers going to be included. Some 131,000 shifts have to be completed by the volunteers. So the organizing uh, committee says that the infrastructure plans and the facilities are absolutely on track and on budget to be ready for the games and hopefully some practice prior to. So they're also talking about the amount of money that's been afforded to the athletes in the hope to train for some successes, personal best, maybe some medals, fingers crossed, some $132,636 for the various sport governing bodies. Interesting breakdown. Smallest amount went to Golf Newfoundland and Labrador, which received $4,000. The highest amount, 28% of the total, went to the rugby union. That's $37,000. So we know all the work that's being done. Some $75 million in infrastructure, upgrades to the Aquarina, a new pitch right there on the Memorial University grounds, various other facilities being attended to brought up to the national game standards and we wonder who will be this go-around Blair Tucker it was on August 17th of 1977 which is also the day Elvis Presley died but it's a day that Blair Tucker won a gold medal in the Canada Summer Games in the 200 meter butterfly at the tender age of 17 we don't generally do very well in the big games, but hopefully this go-around, it will be different. We collected a gold medal in Winnipeg in wrestling. I can't remember the lady's name from Labrador, but congratulations to her. And we'll see if someone can replicate Mr. Tucker's achievements back in the 77 games, of course, the last time they were here. The 77 games were also the first visit to the province by Terry Fox, playing wheelchair basketball at the time. And a big shout-out to those who participated in this past weekend's Swim for Hope. It's an annual fundraiser for the Cancer Care Foundation, 450 swimmers took place uh, took part they raised $123,000 going to the H Bliss Murphy Cancer Care Center here in St. John's as well as centers in Gander Grand Falls Windsor and Corner Brook so congratulations to Swim and L in the fundraising effort a couple of more quick sports notes on this date 1948 Barbara Ann Scott do you remember that name 
classic figure skating name here in the country. She's world and European champion. She then became the first Canadian to win a women's figure skating Olympic gold medal at the Samaritz Winter Games in 1948. And another, which I think is a cool one. It was on this date in 1971. American astronaut Alan Shepard became the first person to hit a golf ball on the moon. So he had a six-iron head of a club uh, tucked away in his spacesuit. He attached it to some lunar... Uh, lunar sample scoop went down, of course, in a very restrictive or constricting spacesuit. A couple of swings, he topped the first couple of balls, a couple of slices. He eventually hit two balls, which he reported driving them miles and miles. Here's where it gets complicated. After return to the Earth, he removed the golf club from the handle, brought it back, and now it's being displayed at the U.S. Golf Association Hall of Fame in New Jersey. For his book, Moonshot, Composite photos of the lunar surface were used to uh, produce a stage photo of the event because there was no still, vo- still photos of the event on the moon, which led to what? Many additional theories of the moon landing being fake in the first place. A lot of it attributed to that particular photograph that was staged to replicate the moon shot hit by Alan Shepard in 1971. Let's keep going. So, news yesterday broke, and some interest here in this province. Of course, many monarchs are still here. Big debate about the role of the monarchy in modern-day Canada, but King Charles has been diagnosed with an undisclosed form of cancer. At 75 years of age, and told he's going to be wholly positive, but is going to stay away from public engagements while receiving his treatment. And I bring that up because, curiously, it's on this date in history, 1952, February the 6th, where Elizabeth ascended to the British throne, and of course, eventually became the longest-serving Queen of England. Just a bit of coincidence there. All right, let's go back to the weather. So I don't know what the afternoon snow is going to bring, but the schools in Metro and other parts of the province are closed today. Now, I have plenty of frustrated parents in my email inbox scrambling for daycare. One of our colleagues has her daughter here, and of course that's best kind, because that does provide a big, massive, mad scramble. Again, if it really gets as messy as we're told it might be through the afternoon hours and what that means for school pickup time, then I guess we'll see what the weather brings. But as of now this morning, with the wind and the rain, yes, it's miserable out. And yes, it's kind of not the nicest conditions to be out and about doing whatever you're doing, but schools are closed for the day. You want to take it on? Let's go. In the world of schools... So I heard lots of conversation about cell phones, right? And cell phones have been very helpful uh, for connectivity and for information gathering and connection with your mom and your dad and your loved ones, your brothers and your sisters. But in the province of Ontario and Quebec, they've banned cell phones in school, in class. In this province, no consideration given to that possibility, period. Now... The NLTA, for instance, is not in favor of banning cell phones in school. They say that in Ontario and Quebec, it's become very problematic and time-consuming to enforce the ban. Okay. You know, they say to leave it up to individual teachers and schools and parents, you know, to teach responsibility versus banning an object like a cell phone, which is absolutely a disruptive force in the classroom. Of course it is. In that world, okay, I mean, they're the professionals in the classrooms. I do know, based on that conversation with my teacher buddies, that cell phones are absolutely a nuisance and a problem and disruptive in the class. So in the air of teaching responsibility, good enough, I'm all for it. Now we can complain about the way that we've modernized the way we test students. And obviously what we're doing is not working. You know the trend since 2003 in math, reading, and science scores, way down, concerningly so. But in the world of teacher responsibility, I'm no expert in testing, 
But what I do know is if we're going to be teaching children, students, pardon me, to be responsible, then how does that jibe with things like all the flexibility associated with the deadlines to pass in your, your book report or some assignment? So we can't really have it both ways here. And, you know, they talk about preparation for the real world. And, you know, there won't be ban on things like cell phones. Well, I tell you what. There will be absolute deadlines that have to be adhered to with consequences to pay if you do not have things done on time. That's the reality. So for teacher responsibility with the use of your cell phone, let's teach it with deadlines as well. Not to be harsh or heavy-handed, but I think if we're all talking about the so-called preparation, which I think is sometimes a bit of an exaggerated phrase, you know, teaching for the real-world circumstances after K-12, to well, I do believe a deadline is going to be something we all have to face, regardless of what it was like in your own classroom. Okay, let's keep going. So the people have spoken. Manulife Financial Corp is backing way or backpedaling on their preferred agreement for the coverage of some 260 specialty medications to be sold only or prescribed only or prescriptions filled only at Loblaw's owned outlets, whether it be inside a Dominion grocery store or, of course, the 1800 Shoppers Drug Marts. This is a good thing, you know, it 100% is. I'm glad Manual Life did it. Obviously, the backlash was coming fast and furious right across the country, whether it be with the small independent pharmacists talking about quality of care and the competitive disadvantage they find if Manual Life had to follow through with this. So I think that's a good one. Just a couple of notes, and we'll talk get into pharmacies here now in a second, but, you know, Loblaws, lots of consternation associated with Loblaws, one of the five majors that gobble up 80% of the retail market for groceries. So when you hear people, understandably so, talking about the price of shopping for groceries, because there's one thing we all share, regardless of your political leanings, it's a problem. Food inflation is stubborn. The prices inside the grocery store are startling. At the same time, when we hear various politicians, and I appreciate their thoughts because Canadians are struggling to provide for their families and themselves, at Loblaws. So Mr. Poliev, he's at this all the time. I get it, like he should be. You know, the role of the opposition is critical here, and this is a focus of concern for Canadians from coast to coast to coast. But his campaign manager, Jenny Byrne, is a registered lobbyist for Loblaws. That's not a good look. Nor is it a good look when Loblaws lobbyists attend a Justin Trudeau fundraiser and shortly thereafter get millions of dollars to install refrigerators inside their, their outfits, their outlets. Nor is it a good look when Galen Weston is cozied up to people like Jugmeet Singh. So across the board, some of these big companies and their lobbying efforts are not in our best interest. So I wonder what Mr. Poliev has to say about, you know, Jenny Byrne, campaign manager, which means right there with the team, strategist, lobbying on behalf of Loblaws, and Loblaws are the one who sets the prices. So anyway, between those three examples, the Loblaws millions for refrigerators, Mr. Singh visiting Galen Westing at his cottage, and then... Mr. Poliev's, I think there's a distinct conflict to be discussed there, but all three parties maybe, just maybe, have a bit too cozy relationship with some of the companies that are really putting a big burden on my pocketbook, my wallet, my bank account. You want to talk about that from any angle? Let's do it. And sticking with some health-related matters. So the confusion still reigns regarding the dental plan. We've had people call this program to be informed that, yes, eventually you will get coverage. And then we still don't know about dent, uh, dentists or denturists or hygienists that are not even signed up to participate in this, even though the care started to roll out in May. Here's the further complicating factor. I had an email from a uh, provincial government pensioner. She's been on the pension for 28 years, has limited coverage, and she thinks it's a double standard and it's unfair how this policy is crafted, the National Dental Care Plan. So here's some of the thoughts 
thoughts that people are sharing with me and some of the ones that I have. Okay. So we're told in a statement from Federal Health Minister Mark Collins' office, it says the Canadian Dental Care Plan is intended to help almost 9 million Canadians who do not have access to dental insurance or any access to dental insurance. There's a lot to that very short sentence. Technically speaking, everybody has access to dental insurance if you care to pay for it. But here's where it gets even sillier and maybe not fully thought through. If you have private insurance coverage and there's something called available benefits, you don't have to sign up for the full suite of offerings from your private private insurance company. So they call it an available benefit. So if you have that insurance, but you've opted out of dental care, then apparently, based on the definition offered by the federal government, you still have access to private insurance, and so consequently, you're not technically eligible for this plan. I don't know about that one. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not paying for dental insurance, but I'm still considered technically as part of it because it's available to me. Add to it the underinsured class, especially in the world of senior citizens. So the copay can be quite high. It doesn't cover everything. And so consequently, folks who are maybe paying about $180 a month for their private insurance, some of which associated with dental, very little coverage available, for instance, the extraction of a tooth, they're left out and the technicality of it. So I really don't think we've got enough answers to know whether or not this $13 billion and 9 million Canadians in technical eligibility is even being adhered to here, because that one really does, I think, rub a lot of people the wrong way. I have private insurance, I've opted out of dental care, but technically I'm, I'm ineligible because I just have private insurance for other facets of health coverage. Strange one. We're going to have to try to get to the bottom of it. Emails have been sent to the federal uh, minister to answer some of these questions, to fill in some of these blanks. And at this moment in time, no response. The silence, deafening. All right. How are we doing out there, David? Let's get her going. This one here, we're going to have to reach out to uh, the Atlantic Economic Council and hopefully their senior researcher, Patrick Brannan. Looking at the economic spin-off inside the what people refer to as the green energy sector. So they compare three methods of clean energy: hydroelectric, natural gas, and wind turbines. According to Mr. Brannon and his eventual report, they say that offshore wind development is seen as the most beneficial to local economies. It'd be great to have Mon to talk about methodology and what how they arrived at that, that conclusion. Here's one of the things from the report. It says with onshore wind developments, there is less local spending because most of the turbines and infrastructure structure is built by international suppliers. Offshore wind developments, like what has been proposed for areas in this province, are different because a bulk of the work has to be done at the project site. be great to have Mr. Brandon on to elaborate on this stuff. We do know there's large international companies that are kicking the tires here in Atlantic Canada with some potential for offshore wind development. You know, big questions remain there though as well because it's proximity to market. You know, selling offshore wind-generated power to the northeastern United States is a pretty big transmission undertaking. So we'll see when the federal government finally figures out the regulations and we figure out some royalty regimes associated with offshore wind because we're not quite there yet. And so we'll, we'll see if Mr. Brandon can make time for the show to help elaborate on how they arrived at offshore wind being the biggest contributor to the local economy if we're talking about the people, what people call the green, the clean or greener energy sector. All right. On the other side of the energy coin, 
The CNLOPB, now the Canada Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board, has wrote about its interpretation of the well and seismic data associated with the discovery out at Beta North. So they're talking about specifically uh, oil at the Cambriel discovery, and then they also add in the Capahaden discovery. In addition to uh, all of those numbers and all the written reports we've seen currently from the CNLOPB, they estimate the Beta North recoverable oil at about a billion barrels. It's different than what Equinor is saying. They're using about half of that. We all know the concern that Equinor has brought to the table during the Energy NL conference when they announced a three-year pause. They remain optimistic, we're, we're told. But when we talk about jobs on shore and local economic impact, the thought now is the possibility where Equinor would hire another company to supply and to operate a floating production storage and offloading vessel, of course, the FPSO. So if that is indeed the case, there will be far less onshore jobs created if and when Equinor says they're going to proceed with Beta Nord, which is not just one hole. I think there's eight different discoveries out there that comprise the entirety of the Beta Nord project. And generally, historically speaking, the companies, the proponents, when they talk about the uh, number of barrels in recoverable oil, the estimates are generally low ball. You know, if think about Hibernia, now well in excess of a billion barrels. The initial estimates were nowhere close to that, maybe about a third of that. So if the billion barrels of numbers we're hearing, then you can be pretty confident that there's probably and likely more recoverable oil out there. So we're still waiting to hear whether or not that will be in the offing. Story that I think is going to get more traction because now that the Law Society has written the Justice Minister about their concerns of staffing at Her Majesty's Penitentiary. Lawyers are unable to communicate as effectively and as efficiently and frequently with their clients because of staffing issues. Can't see them in person. Then there's confusions even when an inmate appears via closed-circuit television. The lawyer and the inmate are not on the same page, and consequently, that may indeed bring forward not only the issues regarding charter, charter violations, because that is one of the cornerstones of criminal justice, is an equitable uh, and a legal obligation for the lawyer to have access to their client. So that story is probably going to get bigger before it fades away. And of course, we know with all the planning for a new penitentiary to replace that dull dungeon down by the lake, still nowhere along the side. Okay, a couple of very quick ones. Yesterday, we had an interesting call from Ted up in Roach's line to talk about a book regarding Newfoundland and Labrador uh, rural furniture makers. This one is from a relative, one of the furniture makers. He wants me to put this out there if you're interested in following up and seeing some Newfoundland and Labrador antique furniture. The old Break House Museum in Meadows Bay of Islands has one of the largest NL furniture uh, displays in the province. Several pieces of the winter furniture that was referenced yesterday. So if you're interested in following up on that front, you can do exactly that. Also a call that gained lots of traction and uh, feedback yesterday was from a gentleman who called who had a problem with his acorn chairlift. Lots of reaction to that. And hopefully, let's follow up, Dave, and see if we can get some comments or some feedback from him yesterday to see if what we tried to help him with was of any satisfaction. The product was sold and installed by the folks at Eastern Medical Supplies, and we've now heard from them as well. I'll read most of the emails just to give you some information. So, the caller is correct in saying that our certified stairlift technician is currently off. This has been very difficult on our business, and we have not offered any new stair. Sh- uh, st- 
stairlift installations as a result. Getting another technician trained on stairlifts has also proven to be a challenge. The next training course offered by the manufacturer is not until September of 2024. However, with that being said, we're still offering repairs and service to the lifts. We appreciate what these pieces of equipment mean to the daily lives of our users, and we do not want to see someone stuck. Our technicians have been working with the manufacturer's technical department to continue our ability to troubleshoot and maintain lifts. Admittedly, our capacity to actually stairlift repairs is taking slightly longer than what we would like it to be, as we do not have a dedicated stairlift technician at this time. However, we're still doing our best to help our customers. So for our caller yesterday, if you're listening this morning, please let us know if you had any luck troubleshooting when calling Acorn directly. And please uh, give the folks at Eastern Medical Supplies a call if you've had no luck yesterday. And of course, just to remind folks, if you have any of these types of concerns regarding a product, Acorn Chairlift in particular from Eastern Medical Supplies, give them a call because that's directly from their sales manager this morning. And we said we'd read it on your behalf. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to kick it off talking about Medivac. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I'm just uh, calling in now. I was I was hoping to actually talk to you a little bit about the uh, letter that the Law Society had sent into the Minister of Justice. Sure. Uh, but if you you want to talk about Medivacs, I'm I'm up to that as well. Well, let, let's start with HMP because that letter is important. You know, there is a legal obligation for the lawyer to be able to uh, communicate effectively with their client, the inmate in this case, but it's not happening, and it's leading to confusion. And I would imagine there's going to be some sort of charter-related conversation on this issue. Your thoughts? Well, Patty, you know, we we uh, we were able to get this letter to ATIP. You know, it wasn't something that Law Society sent over to us. It was something that they were trying to deal with with the, uh, with the minister directly. Uh, but when we got the letter, it is really damning. And I mean, all I, I think it's not only about the people in Province of Newfoundland and Labrador, but I think um, you know, in Canada, they should be looking at us and and just wondering what's going on over here. Because what's so damning about the letter is that. They raise concerns about lawyers not being able to communicate with their clients, you know, um, and and not being able to have that communication really is denying them to fair counsel. So when you look at the repercussions of that, you know, what some of the implications is, is that some of the people who are going through the system may be harmed because they didn't get a fair defense. And and some of the people could be innocent or some of the people could not have had, like, uh, you know, it may not be a severe crime, uh, but because they, they're denied access to their lawyer, they may not be able to put forward a really strong defense and they may be sentenced heavier than what they were supposed to be. I, I I don't imagine this ends here. It's not just going to be a law society letter penned to the justice minister and all of a sudden things fade away because we are years away from the reality changing. Now, the minister goes on to talk about the number of new recruits that have been hired, the number of people that have gone through the training that should indeed be able to help on this front, but the problem still remains. And I don't know if the law society is going to take it to the next level, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do. Well, I mean, it's a denial of your 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 basically your your your, your charter, your, your, your human rights, right? The Canadian Charter of uh, Rights and Freedoms. Um, it, it, you know, the the letter outlines the failure to provide reasonable access to legal counsel and the court and, and the court 
it impedes inmates participation in the court proceedings and the law society actually says in black and white and this is what the Flanders and Labradorians really need to pay attention to it is a breach of the procedural fairness and a breach of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and like there's not much you know in 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 this day and age that we can have a lot of faith in and and people are disillusioned they're disillusioned with governments uh, they're struggling with with high prices they're, they're they're struggling with access to to decent medical care and now we look at this like really i mean this government is, has been in power since what 2015 and all we've seen is erosion erosion of service erosion of supports and and this is not just about criminals and i think you know when budgets are being um, um planned there's been a history of eroding a lot of the services that we as a society rely on and you know like we we, we look at what happened now to um the correctional officers Right. Um, you know, with all the cutbacks and overcrowding at the pen and, you know, resources not being made available, uh, it, it's really had a, an impact. And, and we look at the, uh, you know, there's, there's a report here that I, uh, that I carry with me. Uh, it's, it's from the um, Auditor General, the Flan Labrador, and it talks about the, the you know, the, the correctional system. And, and, you know, I try to raise it when the report came out. There's a, there's a line in there that says adult custody rehabilitation programming and reintegration policies were incomplete, inadequate, and outdated. And for five criteria, no policies existed at all. So, so for me, like I, we always think, okay, if somebody commits a crime or somebody is convicted of crime, when they go into the correctional service, into the system, into the system, you know, there'll be help there. So when they come out, there'll be better, you know, they'll, they'll have improvements made, uh, they'll have anger management, they'll have resources uh, provided to them so that they can become a functional member of society. And Patty, what we've seen on both sides of it now, in your, you know, in, in, in terms of the system, people are being failed. And what happens is the general public needs to be aware of that because if people are going into the, in, you know, into the correctional system, not getting any help, treated as more like a holding cell, a, a pen, and then released, more angry, disillusioned, and more likely to, to commit offenses, well, then the, job, the general public is not being served, not only for people who end up in the system, but for the rest of us as well that, you know, that, that pay the cost of crime. Absolutely. If you come out worse than when you went in, that's bad for public safety. That's bad for everyone, regardless of your thoughts about the criminal element in society. It's just plain fact. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Leela, let's talk about the headline in the Telegram over the weekend. They lied about why they weren't sending the medivac. You're accusing the health authorities of lying to patients about delays and cancellations. Based on what, what can you tell us? Well, that was that was that was last year when that particular incident happened, and I, I like I tried to deal with it. And I tried to get improvements for the services on the North Coast. Like, I, I really wanted, um, you know, the healthcare system um, to, to, to work with me to make sure that somebody who needs a medevac, you know, in a medical emergency where time is so important. Um, you know, I, I really wanted improvements made, but Patty, you know, the reason why I included that in the interview that I did, uh, did you know, this, this weekend 
was because I see the system getting worse. And for me, I, I am really, really um, concerned about uh, future incidents. And also I'm looking back with regret uh, because I see people have been harmed because they've been denied uh, access to medical evacuation. And with that particular one, I, I, I was shocked um, that it, it happened the way it did. Can you tell us what happened? Like, so, say, for instance, if you say they lied, what were they told and what was the reality? Well, in, in actual fact, um, you know, we had a medical emergency in a large community on the north coast. Somebody had to be medevaced. Uh, I wasn't aware of this at, at, the, at, at, at the time. Nine o'clock in the morning, uh, the nurse was calling for a medevac. And so they were going to send a medevac. And at noon, uh, just after noon, uh, 12 noon, uh, the family and um, friends of the family called me to MHA and said, Leela, you know, um, there's supposed to be a medevac in place. Uh, there's no medevac coming. And at the time, they were blaming the airlines for, for not providing the plane. So by then, and what's also shocking is by then, I, I had a lack of trust in, in the health authority. So what I did is instead of calling them directly to, to, to find out what was going on and why this, this person who needed emergency medical evacuation uh, was being delayed, I actually called the airline. I called Air Borealis. I called the director of, of, of operations for Air Borealis. And, uh, you know, I, I won't go into all the details, um, but to save time, but he told me, he said, Leela, we can't provide a plane if the health authority has not requested a medevac. They have to put the request into us. We provide the plane. So then I had that information, so I called, uh, I called the health authority, and I spoke to a, a very senior person, uh, you know, who, who um, ha had a lot of authority and a lot of knowledge, and the first thing they said to me is there's no plane available. And usually the conversation stops there, okay, there's no plane available, Air Borealis got all their planes out for passenger, freight, charters, or whatever. But I knew the difference because I had planned, uh, and, and so I knew the difference. And then they tried to say it was weather. But the planes had landed on the airstrip in the community twice that morning while they were waiting for the medevac, twice. So there, there was nothing wrong with the weather. And I, I, I basically told them, and actually the, the last plane, the second plane had landed within an hour of our conversation. So the weather was fine. And I said, I actually, I had the conversation about weather because the director had brought it up because he was talking to the pilots and they were looking at the weather and the weather was going to come down. It was forecast to come down later that afternoon and it was going to be down for several days. So he imparted to me that if 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 a flight don't get in today, Leela, you know they probably won't get in tomorrow, and and so it was that conversation. And and to me, when somebody is giving me excuses that's not truthful, that's lies. So I I don't I don't see anything wrong with me calling them out, uh, you know. And I, I didn't want to do it, but you know we've had some really serious medical events happen recently where people have been harmed because of delays, uh, strokes. Uh, we have also had uh, some, some people who were very, very lucky that they, you know, their medical condition uh, improved so they didn't have lasting effects, but there's people out there with lasting effects. And for us on the North Coast, we are not a third world area. We should have the same access to services as the rest of the province, especially when it comes to our medical health. 
because when when things happen because of heart attack, stroke, or diabetes, or a serious accident where somebody is injured and bones are broken or internal bleeding, a medical emergency is very, very dependent on time, and we see the delays. So don't flippantly say excuses to us that's not truthful, right? Understood, and point taken. Uh, anything else this morning, Leela, before we say goodbye? Well, you know, like for, for me, um, it is quite emotional actually talking about medivacs because, Patty, uh, um, you know, like the, the North Coast is made up of six communities and the people in those communities are either my friends or my family or, 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 or relatives of friends and family. So when one person is impacted, it has a deep emotional impact on me, uh, you know, and I, I, don't want, I don't want to continue to live with regret and what only is and if only is, if only is. How many times I hear that? If only they would have got here quicker. If only we could have get, get them out. If only they would have got treatment, you know. And um, it's not only about medical evacuation. It's about really serious illnesses such as cancer and diabetes and, uh, uh, you know, stroke. All the all these things are, are so important, uh, you know. And um, people's lives have been impacted. Their life have deteriorated because of the failure to respond adequately. And that's what I, I really that's the reason why I you know I, I said that is, is it is quite harmful um, you know to, to, to be saying things like that because it undermines people's confidence in the system but on the north coast we don't have confidence in the healthcare system we really don't We're, we, we pray for good luck we pray for a miracle and we pray that actually that there will be a good nurse at the clinic that's willing to help us and, uh, and that's how we get by I appreciate the time this morning, Leela. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Leela Evans is the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. Let's go ahead and take a break. We'll make it back. Plenty of time for you to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to... Line two. Brian, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. You? I'm not bad. I haven't phoned for a while. Uh, what I was thinking about today, how the Americans are after taking trials, T-R-I-A-L-S, and making them into soap operas. There's a trial going on now down in Michigan. This lady and her husband bought their son a gun for one Christmas. He took that gun, went into his school, and killed four of his friends, or I don't know who they were. And now she's been accused of accessory to murder. Uh, It's on television. I haven't watched too much of it. But, you know, it's like a soap opera. It's almost like a hockey game, because after after the trial ends for the day, they... Have, have experts on who reviewed the testimony and who won and who lost. It's, it's better than the all-star hockey game. And how they're after taking human tragedy, the killing of four young people down in Michigan, and made it into a soap opera. I even think that these people who take the stand are being directed by directors of, of, of shows because this lady comes across so cool, you know. So that's all I just want to say this morning. 
Well, I mean, the spectacle of court proceedings, I think, can be, you know, all the way back to OJ. You know, the whole world was watching court proceedings take place. And you're right. It has become quite sensational. And it does draw eyeballs. I mean, I think, you know, even if you just look at the things like uh, crime TV shows, they're really quite popular because they're intriguing. I think the same can be said for real-life drama that unfolds in the courtroom. Yeah, I think you're right, so... And people get behind them and have to come to, to even to even said yesterday that more more Republic, or more Democrats want to see the woman convicted than Republicans. So you know it's not to coming out of that. So. Yeah, maybe so. <clears throat> the the drama I try to you know my intake of American news is you know at a dribble at this point because I can't watch American cable news one thing for sure because it's just so overwhelmingly tedious and repetitive. But uh, anyway, yeah. That's, that's all I want to say this morning. Thank you for listening to me. I appreciate your time. Take care, Brian. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, uh, Rock button. Let's keep going here. Let's go to line one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. Good. Just wanted to uh, talk about the situation at the penitentiary regarding the letter that was obtained by the NDP from the, uh, via the Freedom of Information request. I, I think it's absolutely appalling that people who are incarcerated at HMP in this province, many of them are waiting to go to trial. They've been charged with crimes. Some people have been convicted and serving sentences. But the majority of those people have been charged, have not been found guilty of anything. They're presumed innocent. Now they're being denied their constitutional right uh, to confer with counsel. That's absolutely shocking. And it's not new. I think it's just uh, taken on a different light now because now we actually have a letter of concern from the law society itself. So, I, like I mentioned to Ms. Evans, I don't imagine this is the end of the road. At some point, whether it be one of the incarcerated or the law society itself is going to make some sort of additional challenge federally on this particular issue because being denied access to your lawyer is a problem. And for a lawyer to be denied access to his client is a problem. They have a legal obligation. So to know that some procedures will be happening where the lawyer and the client or the inmate aren't on the same page, both don't really exactly know what the inmate wants or what the lawyer plans on doing, that's going to have direct consequences for the how the, the case and the trial proceeds and eventual convictions or not. And there's a charter issue here that is very likely going to be part and parcel of the next stage of this conversation. Yeah, it, um, you're getting to the point now that uh, these systemic delays and whatever the reason for these delays, you know, it's staff shortages or um, uh, insufficient infrastructure or whatever, it, it really doesn't matter. It falls on the government to ensure that cases are prosecuted in a timely manner and are moved through the courts in a timely manner. So the burden is on the crown here. And I, I think what has to happen is uh, we're getting to the point now that I think the administration of justice is getting uh, brought into disrepute here because of these systemic delays and and, uh, and problems in the criminal justice system in this province. And uh, I think it's going to be up to the courts to start issuing uh, judicial stays of proceedings on some charges, which is a permanent halt to a prosecution, which is tantamount to a judgment or verdict of acquittal. 
And it could be some very serious matters like murder and sexual assaults and other things like that. So I think that will get the government's attention then when they have a high-profile murder case that uh, maybe uh, someone had HMP on remand for a murder charge is not able to confer with their counsel. And the judge goes, no, we've had enough of this dog and pony show. I'm entering a state of proceedings now. The matter is shut down. We'll see where it goes, but I don't think this is the end of the story. No, it's, um, you know, I understand that government uh, has budget constraints. I understand that. All departments of government have uh, constraints on their, on their budgets. Uh, you know, there's priorities. But HMP is not fit for human habitation. It's not fit. They, they have serious health issues there. This is something that has to be at the, on the radar screen of the provincial government. I've listened to the ministers responsible for this, Minister Abbott, Minister Hogan, primarily. Strangely, I haven't heard from the premier on this very much. It's, it's been the ministers in the departments. But they just keep tossing this around like a political football. We need a new penitentiary here. Get it done. Get it done now. Put it on an expedited track. Get it done. If it costs $500 million, get it done. I hear fiscal responsibility from the, the, the phrase fiscal responsibility from John Abbott. What are you talking about? These people are living down there with rats running all over them and, and being bitten by rodents. The question he has to ask himself is, would he subject himself to that? If the answer is no, then get it built. Just do it. I mean, you talk about uh, the amount of money it's going to take, and the last uh, reply to the tender was outside their so-called affordability envelope. But we've been talking about this for, I don't know, just pick a number, 10 years, 20 years. So when you add all the years and the amount of money that it's increased since they've been talking about replacing an aged facility, the money we could have saved had we done it when it should have been done versus the conversation today is pretty pathetic. I mean, we're talking about management of my money, your money. The government doesn't have their own money. It's all our money. So we should have done it when the time was right, which was, I don't know, pick a number once again, 10, 20 years ago. Think about what it would have cost to build a replacement, what it would have meant for the ability to add rehabilitation to punishment, to avoid things like this staffing issue and the inability for lawyers to deal with their clients effectively and efficiently and in a timely fashion. So a lot of this could have been avoided had we done what everyone knew was the right thing to do and replace it a long time ago. Constitutional rights under the Charter are rights that we all have. The right to counsel, the right to be informed of the right to counsel, and the right to retain and instruct counsel and have meaningful dialogue with the counsel is an entrenched Charter right under Section 10 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. They're not just words printed on a page. They have substantive uh, meaning and they affect the procedural the procedural uh, paradigm of the criminal law process in this country every day. If you don't have the right to counsel, you're flying blind. You, you cannot prepare for court cases. You cannot prepare for a trial strategy. You don't get to see the evidence against you because you're not, you're not getting the disclosure because the lawyer gets the disclosure, but he or she is not able to confer with the client on the evidence that the government has against them. I think it's time for the judiciary to step in here and start staying some charges. That'll get the government's attention. When a judge stays a, a murder charge and the case is not adjudicated on its merits, that a judge turns around and says, no, you know, we can't have this. The administration of justice is being brought into disrepute here. This is an abusive process. 
and I'm going to shut this down now. They're doing it in Ontario. Cases are not being brought to brought to trial in uh, in uh, in time under the Jordan decision, and, and and for other reasons. And cases are being tossed there. And they have a new courthouse there, by the way, in downtown Toronto. But it's 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 too far away for lawyers to get to. You know, it's a logistics problem, and they have a brand new billion dollar courthouse there. So it's not just about the infrastructure; it's about putting supports in place to see that the machine, you know, you know the wheels are, are are moving along in a uh, in a proper manner, and and everything is flowing properly. But uh, this just can't go on. It's it's uh, it's a health and safety issue of the inmates and and the people who work there. It's uh, it's about the criminal law process, the right to counsel. They're, like I said, they're not words on a page. They have substantive meaning. Uh, anybody who doesn't think that, who doesn't think that, you know, you're just delusional. I appreciate the time, Colin. Thanks for the call. Including people in the government. Okay, thanks, Patty. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Bye now. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's say good morning to one of the candidates running in the by-election for Ward Four of the City of St. John's. That's Tom Davis. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I want to start with um, wondering whether the city, the town of uh, Sydney, just received, according to Ryan uh, Snowden, uh, up to 150 centimeters of snow, which is an incredible amount of snow. And of course, now they're calling it Snowmageddon 2024. Yeah, I've heard Barb Sweet refer to it as Slowmageddon, considering the fact it was over the course of three days that they got that dump of 150, which is an extraordinary number. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can all remember our big uh, snowfall in January of 2020, uh, which was 90, around 90, 93 centimeters of snow. Now, we had a lot of snow down before then, which didn't help either. But I, I reflect upon that time as it, it appeared that the city um, kept on clearing the snow with our existing equipment and, and didn't seem to, even after all the the shopping malls and everything was cleared, didn't seem to try and tap into the existing contractors. And the argument was made that because of the height of the snow, that everything had to be cleared with, with uh, snowblowers. And so we brought some in and purchased another one or two. And and I just reflect upon what that meant, the nine days that we were closed and, and the loss of uh, the, the challenge that it that it was on small businesses, restaurants, uh, retail, and, and just the general public in general. I think there was something to the need for snowblowers to play a bigger role than we're used to, given how much snow was on the ground. But one of the things that we spoke about during the state of emergency and after it was lifted and we got back to a sense of normalcy is, you know, part of the postmortem had to be a comprehensive li- a list of all heavy equipment in close proximity to the Northeast Avalon, whether it be owned by municipalities and or the private sector to be mobilized at the drop of a hat when the forecast looked the way that it did for that storm. I don't know if that ever happened, but certainly when, you know, days rolled on and then all of a sudden we were using and incorporating more and more equipment owned by people in the private sector on, you know, one-off contracts, maybe if we just had that list that we could mobilize just like with an email thread or an email chain, just like we do for a variety of other things where we have partnerships or collaborations, that might be a good idea. I don't know if it ever happened. Well, I believe if it had happened, we'd know about it. So, you know, as part of my platform, I want to call on um, the Public Works Department down there to have to create that working group. And and a lot of times when you're dealing with a state of emergency, this isn't about having a contract and it costing money because obviously it would. It, it's about the community coming together 
to get everything running properly. I mean, there are people who, if they'd had an emergency and heart attack while out trying to shovel that snow, there was no way an ambulance could get to them, for example. So, you know, part of my platform is we need to have, uh, you know, this is it's not unreasonable to expect that what just happened to Sydney or what happened to us in 2020 is not going to happen again this year, next year, but definitely within the next reasonable period of time. So that's that's a strong part of my platform, and I want to call on the city to 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 listen in, and hopefully when I, if the residents of Ward 4 choose to elect me, that's something I'll be able to spearhead. I think emergency preparedness is one of the cornerstone mandates for municipal councils or provincial governments. You know, we hear some conversations being extended to, you know, cooperations uh, about things like climate change preparedness and what that looks like and the horsepower required to come up with concrete plans based on, you know, actual knowledge, working knowledge of emergency preparedness and how to build and where to build those types of things. So I think some of that is happening, but to the extent that you're talking about, I'm not really sure. Uh, It's worthy of a follow-up, though. That much I'll say. For sure. I want to. I, I was in a conversation, and, and someone made a comment that uh, about the senior management at at the city of St. John's, and this is not to pick on them because I know they're all working hard, and they benefit from the way that the the salaries are structured down there. When when the unions receive. Um, a raise, then it automatically goes to the managers and goes to the councillors at the City of St. John's. And the comment was made, I wonder how many people at the City of St. John's earn more than the Premier. And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. So I went through it. And the Premier makes $160,525. There are 25 managers at the City of St. John's that make more than that. I often wonder how valuable that comparison is because you hear it all the time with how much the prime minister makes or how much the premier makes versus other people satisfying different roles i i get it i mean if we're just talking about numbers on paper then they're indisputable if you say 25 based on uh audited reports coming from the city of st john's fair enough i don't know what we do with that though all the same well for example the cfo of the canada, of the canada summer games makes 160 is making one hundred sixty-three thousand dollars which is more than the premier makes. It's just, and the other challenge is that every employee at the city of St. John's is on track to make uh, 2.25% more this year, 3.5% in 2025. So somehow we have to disconnect. I mean, if we have to pay certain members of our, of our employees more money in order to retain them or just to have them, well, that's a different discussion. But the challenge is that these raises add up to be many thousands of dollars. And, and then or council then votes unanimously, which which it seems like that's all they've done, this gen- this council, since they've been elected. They all vote unanimously to support the budget, where that's not a precedent. I went back to other budgets where councillors did vote against budgets. You know, this latest one is a 13% raise. The city of Toronto raised by 10%. It was national news. And I'm going to knocking on doors, and, and I'm looking at people's homes and their vehicles, and I, I can see that people are struggling. You know, as you go around, you can see that people have to spend money on their homes, and you can see that they're making different choices. And I really don't feel like in this latest budget that the pain is being shared. And and in all of all deference to to the councillors down there, I realize it's a difficult job, and I realize what Mount Pearl and Grand Falls went through is very unpalatable when you're in labor negotiations or when you're looking at reducing services or making difficult choices. And, I, and I'm not trying to say this is an easy, nuanced thing, and, I did, and if I am elected, I know it's going to be really, really hard, but one commitment I will make is, A, to continue coming on the show and being, being a spokesperson for the, 
the residents of my ward, but the city in general as well. But also to 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 look at the, the different people down there when they gather around and say, guys, you know, there's people really struggling in this city, and and every month that situation gets worse. And adding 13% more in taxes this year to businesses and to individuals, when I will argue that this, that you can only really justify a small percentage of it, and I don't see I don't see evidence that difficult choices are being made. At, at City Hall and around the the, tape, the council chambers down there. I appreciate the time, Tom. We're off to the news. Good luck. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Tom Davis. He's on the ballot with Greg Smith. He's running to be the councillor to replace Ian Froud in Ward 4 in the city of St. John's. Let's take a break for the news. John, you're next to talk about landlords. Don't go away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go to line number one. John, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, sir. Morning. Uh. I had to reach out here and now I'm calling in the open line just to try to get a bit off my chest here. Uh, I started renting a property out in Paradise uh, on uh, December the 1st, 2021. So it was all fine and dandy. Uh, I was cutting grass for the landlord and that around here, and the lady was throwing me a few dollars for doing it. So I bought the lawnmower offer anyway, so... The following summer, last summer, uh, I was cutting my bit of grass anyway. That's how it went down. And uh, in the middle of June, bang on my door Sunday afternoon, open the door, ranting and raving. I just closed the door. I said, I don't got to listen to this person. So anyway, she proceeded throwing stuff out in my garbage that I got my property in that. And uh, for weeks on end, the person was coming, sticking papers on my door, saying I had to be out of my apartment and stuff like that. She hadn't gone to the floor, nerves gone on, blood pressure pills. Because of it. So then, then he came with a, a load of crushed stone and uh, put on only my bit of grass where I was cutting my bit of grass for my dog. So then I comes home one day. My blinds are all rolled up in my apartment. I had a near pellet gun here. The person went outside, took a picture of my ear pellet gun, and uh, she wasn't going to take it in the house anyway. And uh, that following Tuesday in September, six big RNC guys come to my door and knocked on my door. He said, excuse me, sir. I said, yes, so, buddy. He said, we got a reporter. You got a firearm. I said, my son, come on in. I said, I got an ear gun there. I said, oh, buddy, for two years now. There's a couple of rodents around the door, and I was shooting them, type deal like that. So I didn't know what to be doing with it. So uh, I was working with a case manager down at the gathering place to try to navigate me through this. So anyway, she ended up filing the thing to the tenancy board for me, and we had the tenancy board hearing on October the 30th. And the landlord never filed nothing. So he ruled on my part, he ruled in my favor, we'll say. So then after that matter, then she went to work then, I guess, and had to give me 10 days notice. So then she serves me with a a 90-day eviction notice. And it doesn't have to be for anything or anything. So now that's the boat I'm in now. And at the end of the month, I got to be out of my place. 
and it was no doings. I didn't do nothing. The person phoned the cops on my uh, on the social worker at the gathering place and everything. Went down there screaming at them people and stuff, right? So uh, I'm left at odds here. I guess here in Newfoundland, he can kick you out in the winter months regardless, hey? There, well, we hear far too many stories like this. You know, there is a Residential Tenancies Act in place for a reason, but these no-cause, no-fault evictions are becoming far too frequent. I just don't understand. Look, if I have a tenant who is paying the rent on time, not beating the place up, I don't know why I would go out of my way to make that person's life miserable. Well, All buddy, I need is a, uh, just a peaceful, pay-on-time tenant. And, uh, and that works, but my buddy, it all started over me not cutting a bit of grass, hey, for free. That's what it started over, hey. Okay. And it just escalated from there then, hey. Cops had to be phoned and stuff like that. Uh, she come to my door here uh, three weeks ago with a tenant to look at the place now with no notice or nothing. And I opened the door and I said, Miss, like it's getting to the point where it was like, uh, it's getting brazen like type deal. Because, like, this person would never like that, and that is escalated. Like, so anyway, uh, she said, I'm going to, I said, I'll do, you, I'll do you a favor. I'll phone. So I phoned the police, hey. And I said, I got a person here at my door now trying to get in here, hey. And they're not getting in here. So whatever he did after that's back, now I have no idea. But now that's the dilemma that I find myself in here now, and I haven't got a clue about what to do. And uh, I was working with the gathering place down there, the case managers, for seven months on this situation. Every piece of paper that was stuck on my door was not done properly, I was told. Uh, so harassment is right up into the, into the mix. So when I spoke to the case management there in January, he sloughed me off to a John Howard uh, housing person. Now, they've been dealing with my situation, with this rental situation for seven months. So now all of a sudden, he just kicked me over to a John Howard housing person that I don't have no clue. I don't have no rapport with these people. And so how is the system working like that, old buddy? Well, the John Howard Society can be pretty helpful, so I suggest at least follow through to develop that report. A uh, couple of quick questions. So was ever part of your rental agreement to take care of the property, to mow the lawn, what have you? I didn't hear you. Was part of your rental agreement the upkeep of the property, including mowing the lawn initially? No, no. When I, when I first come here, the property was derelict, so I'm an OCD guy. I got out there, so she had a lawnmower. She loaned me the lawnmower, so I started cutting her grass, and she paid me for it. Hey, she got two or three properties here, so I cut the grass. So now, last summer rolled around, and I was cutting my little bit of grass, and I wasn't cutting the grass for free. Hey, bye. And anyway, uh, that's what turns it all on his head. Hey. And around my property, in my residence, my son, in my residence when I wasn't here, taking pictures, my buddy, yeah, you did it all. Huh? <laughs> and I live I lives in paradise. And uh, that's what went on with me, old buddy, now, and I haven't got a clue. I got to be out of here at the end of February. And uh, I'm like, haven't got a clue what to be at, hey. Huh? 
Not sure where to direct you, but I certainly would follow up with the John Howard Society if that's been one of the referrals. That my you've buddy, my buddy, I phoned him now. I phoned him three times now in the last week, and no one's gotten back to me there. Sir, there's a lot of balls being dropped here, hey. Like, literally, though, like, there is a lot of balls dropped, right? People are doing jobs, but at the end of the day, uh, it's not a very good uh, situation, my son. So where are you now? I, I live in paradise, old buddy. In the same unit, in a different unit? In or same unit, in the same unit. And so when do you have to be out? I got to be out, but in the February, my buddy. And uh, I'm OCD clean, my son. You can, and I don't, all over the bit of grass, my buddy, childishness. She went down screaming at my social worker, phoned the cops on my social worker and everything, huh? Strange for a bit of grass mowing to be the cause of such disputes. And my, and my buddy, that's why I didn't threw my property out in the garbage. The lawnmower brought off first. She threw that out in the garbage on me and stuff. I wouldn't even go out to have any doings with it because I don't want no trouble, hey? And uh, I've been in a bit of trouble in my life, and uh, I'm not going to step up to that type of a deal no more, hey? Like I said, now I've been uh, two and a half years now since I've been out of the HMP. Uh, I'm on no probations or nothing. I got a dog here at a bus stop a couple of years ago. February 9th, I'll have her two years. And my life has been pretty good. And now I got this. To me, I call it juvenile stuff like because I'm not used to it, right? But it's not the list that affects you, hey? Fair enough. I appreciate the time. Uh, I'm not sure where to point you at this moment beyond that hopeful bit of help that y'all, I do hope you get from the housing person at uh, John Howard. Anything else quick before I have to move on? You can also reach out to no, the folks at Terminus. So I, just, I just figured okay, I'd put that out there now and just, you know, just for the sake of it. Hey, old buddy. No problem. I appreciate your time. I wish you I, good luck. I, re- I remember you now in 2016. When so I lost an envelope with money in a town by the Hong Kong Bank on Water Street. You remember that? Vaguely. What became Pete of that? Seuss, Pete Susie got the call. Okay. And my, and my friend Davis said, John, you lost money. The RNC got it up there. So you got it back? Don't ring a bell? Not particularly. No, but I went up to the Daniels and got a bit of money back from there and see, I did. <laughs> okay, well, that's the good news. I appreciate the time. I'm off to the break. Thanks for the call. Okay, my son. Good Thank luck. you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Tom Badcock. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Great today. How about yourself? Not too bad, boy. Uh, the, uh, while I was uh, wanting to talk about another topic, I was listening to Mr. Smith there and the uh, he brought back some memories, and you know he's raised some very valid points. Uh, when we had 9/11, of course, we had 100 people here at the hub. Uh, after the first day, I released them all out into the community, uh, where they moved in with houses, because we had no places here for them to shower and things like this. And afterwards, I uh, I wrote the city and I said, "Hey, I will come up with a plan. If this happens again." Nothing heard. Similarly, with Snowmageddon as uh, Mr. Smith was raising so validly that uh, after all this was over, and of course I live in Kilbride, surrounded by farmers with tractors and big snowblowers and things. Again, I wrote the city and I said, look, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but maybe you need a plan for this happens again. Not a word. So he's raised some very valid points. Uh, 
Uh, I had uh, I got some friends in Cape Breton who sent me some pictures of what's happening up there. I think it's worse than our snowmageddon. And it's going to happen again, as he's pointed out. And uh, I'm wondering, too, like he is, uh, where are these plans? Uh, they're not difficult to do. Sit down, write a plan, talk to all the people. And like you said, all it takes is an email to activate all this equipment. So... Uh, that's not why I called. Uh, Just I to called. that point, though, so, it's in everybody's best interest and certainly the best interest of city council that if and when things like this are, are going to be forecasted or actually happen, they can say, here's the plan we devised as a result of Snowmageddon. Here's what we learned. Here's what we're able to execute quicker than we did. That. The people will be saying, bravo, excellent work. This is what we need. If that's not the case, then they're just creating a whip for their own tail because it's quite likely that these types of event, weather events are not going to stop all of a sudden. Uh, exactly, and that's why it came back to mind for Mr. Smith that, you know, when I wrote and said, look, that's what I did in the military. We planned, we did we did all those things. That's all we did was plan for the eventuality of something happening. And that's when why when 9-11 happened, you know, that was my one of my secondary duties in the military was to house all of us in the event of a nuclear attack. So being basically a shelter commander and looking after all these people was something I had trained to do. So naturally, I released them all in the committee, into the community uh, after the first day, and they all went around the houses in St. John's to stay with families. And uh, I wrote them afterwards and said, look, any assistance, I'm more than willing to volunteer my time. But nothing, because it is going to happen again. We are going to get another Stormageddon, or we're not going to get something like that happening. And we should be making a plan. And that's what we have an, an EMO for, I thought, was... They should be planning for these eventualities, but anyway. Well, planning uh, for good times, planning for easy times is easily done on the fly. Pa- planning yeah. for worst-case scenario takes time and effort, some of that tedious work that is not glamorous until you unfold your plan. And then all of a sudden people are quite thankful for it. Businesses, individuals, you know, people going to school, politicians themselves. So, yeah, easy times. Well, I could do that on the fly. If I wake up and i got an easy day ahead, I don't need to plan anything. But if I wake up and all of a sudden there's a problem, I better have a plan. Exactly. Like this morning, I got a nine-year-old and, of course, a bunch of things to do at work. And all of a sudden, I get an email saying no school. So, you know, I got to make all the adjustments. Uh, my wife works at the Janeway, so naturally she's she's there. So I got to make my adjustments. I got to have my plan. I know it's a simple thing, but you're right. Uh, not to take up all your time, uh, Patty, why I called was, as you're probably aware, as I've spoken to you in the past, we have been trying uh, here at the Hub to get rid of our oil. You know, $4,000 a month that we're paying to heat this building with oil. Uh, And I have been trying to get the feds, uh, the provincial people, uh, even the city of St. John's, to see if there's any kind of uh, programs available similar to what homeowners are getting to help us with the conversion. Uh, To the city's credit, they gave us 10 grand last year, which we put aside to help us with it. Then I went to the province, to the Department of Environment, and, uh, uh, you know, very receptive and everything. And for the last two years, been working with a gentleman over there who called me yesterday after coming back from Ottawa saying, uh, bad news, Tom, but uh, no money. And I said, what do you mean no money? He said they told us they had no money for a program to help out, you know, community organizations. Uh, so, you know, I can't say on ear some of the words I said, but... I can't believe this. We have this carbon tax nonsense, and we have all of those things that feds are putting in place. No one seems to understand 
what these things are for. But one would logically assume that any of the money that they're collecting for these things would go to projects like this to help charities, to help community organizations and not-for-profits to convert from from oil to, you know, the heat pump situation. And the fact that they come back, he comes back from Auto One calls and says, sorry, no money available for this. You know, anybody who votes liberal and federally in this next election, man, oh man, there's got to be something wrong with them. I'm a little bit confused here about the pots of money because I remember a story around this time last year, as a matter of fact, where money that came from, whether it be the Climate Change Challenge Fund or whatever that particular pot of money was, I remember it was $38 million. It was joint uh, province or provincial and federal initiative. One of the groups that got to replace their oil heating system, and I think with electric boilers, if I'm not mistaken, was the Bay St. George YMCA. So okay. I remember that story specifically. So if it was afforded to a not-for-profit like a YMCA, how could it not be uh, also afforded to a, a group like the Hub? I don't understand. So That's that's why I say, he said to me and I said to him, you know, I don't, just don't understand this. Uh, I said it's not like something I asked for yesterday or the day before. I said we've been working on this for two years. And he understand. He was sympathetic. I'm not blaming the Department of Environment here. Or, or here, you know, they they want to work federally with the feds to be able to share costs and all those things. I understand that. But basically, what he said was that there's no money available. They were moving it to something else, either to a climate change things or to the actual home thing for helping people with homes. Uh, but there was nothing available to help charities. Or, so or they've emptied they emptied out that particular fund, or they just reshifted yeah. the money to another pot. Because in the Low Carbon Economy Leadership Fund, that was thirty-eight or forty million dollars. So either it's exhausted or they moved it somewhere else. But that was specifically for municipalities, not for profits. Yes, and he said, "Well, he said what, what I could understand from the conversation has been moved." And I said, to, to what? And he says, well, it was rather unclear. We couldn't get any any information. So that's reason for my call was to see maybe somebody somewhere can call you or you can rattle some chain somewhere to find out what's going on. Why, why is there no money available for people such as ourselves to be able to do this? And as I said, we're spending $4,000 a month. So there's the monetary aspect for us as well as the fact that we're throwing all this crap into the air every day. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you've done this, but how about this for a suggestion? I say this all the time when people are considering making these moves to central heat pumps or electric boilers or what have you, is to go through the the, uh, company that sells and installs to help navigate the pots and, of course, call your insurance company to make sure you still can uh, get your coverage. So just take that opportunity for whatever product you are looking to install, deal directly with that company and let them do the search for you because that's part of their offering. I've done that. We've already oh, done two. that. Okay. For, for my home, now in, in April, I'm getting it put into my home. Okay. okay. I already have one that I put in myself. I got an Amazon installed myself four or five years ago, but I decided a little while ago that I would do it at home. So I went to the company, and I asked the company, and, and the lady there, Deanne, she's done everything for me. She's accessed everything. She's got the home inspectors coming in. She's got she's done everything for me. Here at the hub, I went to another company and I asked the company to do the same thing for me. Got a price to do the conversion and to install all the things and all the rooms, yada yada yada. And I said, "Can you find some money for me?" And sorry, we can't find any money for you. So I've gone that route. 
Okay. Uh, it was just something that popped into my mind. And I think yeah. you mentioned Tom Davis. I think you might call him Tom Smith, but Tom Davis, I think, is the person you were referring to. Yeah, that was the person I heard. I'm sorry. I got his name wrong. But yeah, and that's yeah. okay. He just sent a tweet along, so I just thought I'd sorry, let you. Sorry, Mr. Davis. I apologize. No problem. I, I do support. I, listen, I don't live in the district, and I don't know you, and I'm not calling to support him. I just thought that his ideas were great. So. Yeah, fair enough. Emergency preparedness is a big topic, and we'll do some follow-up on it for sure. Yeah. So I can't think of anything else because I've put people on to various companies to let them do the legwork, and they've had great yeah. satisfaction with it because there's just yeah. so much out there that yeah. as much as I try to stay on top of it all, it's almost impossible because there's different little niche pots of money for individuals, for homeowners, for people who are renters, for not-for-profits. So it's just been hard to stay on top. That's right. Great. So I appreciate it uh, listening to me, and maybe there's somebody out there can help us, or maybe somebody in government will will be able to call. I know the feds won't do anything. It's just like talking to the walls, talking to some of those guys that we have here. But uh, we know I'm frustrated. We've tried everything we can. So maybe somebody will call in and say, this is how you can access the money, and then we'll move ahead with it. But I certainly appreciate listening to me this morning. Yeah, I'll have a little look around, too. Uh, once again, I've got a file created about some of these pots of money. Some of it are stale. Some of been, the monies have been depleted or exhausted. So I'll have a quick look. If I find anything helpful, Tom, I'll zip it along. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And if anyone in the not-for-profit sector, because I do remember that story, I'm pretty sure it was last February, where the YMCA, YMCA out on Bay St. George got monies for exactly that. They moved away from oil to electric boilers. So I'll have to maybe check back in because a couple of those, the, the Climate Change Challenge Fund and the Low Carbon Economy that 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 fund was for exactly that. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of show left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Rudy Singleton. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thanks for taking my call. No problem at all. Uh, again, given the weather, uh, the impending weather, and with schools being closed, uh, Emmaus House, our food bank, will not be open today. We we parallel the uh, the school board uh, policy of on, on weather, and to keep uh, traffic at a minimum, we close, and uh, we will be open again tomorrow at one o'clock. I appreciate the update, of course, because folks may indeed be considering making their way to your food bank, and if it's not open, you've saved them the trip. And Patty, again, I want to thank the OCM for their uh, for your cooperation in helping us get the message out. Because you know, at this point in 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 the proceeding, shall we say, you're the only medium to which we have access, and we really appreciate your cooperation. Well, we're happy to share the information, and I appreciate your time, Rudy. How many volunteers working at the food bank? Well, Patty, we have probably about sixty altogether. Okay. You know, from different different groups. Uh, uh, each day, a different church actually. Uh, uh, they staff the uh, diff- uh, they staff the uh, Mayor's house uh, on each uh, given day of the week. I appreciate the update today, and uh, thanks for the volunteerism to you and your colleagues at Mayor's House Food Bank. Mayor's House. Mayor's House. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Patty. No problem, Rudy. Take care. Have a good one. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Morning to you. Uh, yes, I agree with Tom there. What they're doing down there is fantastic. The food banks have been going through a lot lately. I know the one down behind the old Corpus Christi Church had to close completely. 
and uh, those people had to find new places to go. So saving a trip to a food bank is a big deal for these people. But look, uh, this morning, uh, number one, of course, the the uh, being prepared, whether it's a city or a town anywhere in the province. I mean, we only need to look back at what happened on the West Coast at Port of Basque, you know, just uh, last year and all the other things that go on here. And every time we hear about a major um, a hurricane heading up the coast, up, up the uh, up the American coastline coming our way, you know, we always got to be concerned. We're on the coast ourselves, and these, these uh, storms are not getting any better. I know L.A., the last two days in Los Angeles and the surrounding counties, they're going through hell and back again over there. And, I mean, you know they're prepared. And they also have what's called a, a, an, an earthquake-prepared kit, and everybody has one. My daughter has one out in Vancouver. It's an earthquake-prepared kit, and, and not only are the residents of Vancouver and all the surrounding communities, cities and whatnot, all prepared, but, but the cities and the towns, they, they all have an earthquake uh, uh, preparation plan, and they can execute it in a minute because you need to. You know, when the earthquake hits, it hits. I mean, there's not much telling you in advance that this earthquake's going to hit. You might see some seismographic activity, but there's always seismographic activity along these these plates that are shifting all the time. And of course, we have we have four and five days notice on these storms, uh, lots of notice for the most part. But you know, uh, or having a plan that can be executed at a moment's notice. Um, you know, we really should have that. If we don't have it. I'd like to know why we don't. Yeah, I'm going to do the follow-up on that particular issue with the city. And I would suggest, you know, that's got to be a cooperative issue between Paradise, Conception Bay South, St. John's, Mount Pearl, and surrounding area because we'll all get impacted at the same time, shared services, shared equipment for the hardest hit areas. That's got to be part of that plan as well. So I will do that follow-up. And when you talk about, you know, living in close proximity to the San Andreas Fault and the likelihood for earthquakes because we've seen them over the past, over the past number of years, decades, Decades. So they not only have preparedness kits for in the home, there's an entirely different set of rules for how building codes, for instance, you know, in uh, places that are close to these fault lines for obvious reasons. If you don't build to accommodate what is in the inevitability of shocks, and we don't mean always going to be magnitude of seven and a half or what have you, but mm-hmm. even smaller ones can rattle the buildings that are not built to uh, sustain uh, an earthquake in this case. And speaking of earthquakes and emergency preparedness, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the story of a volcanic eruption uh, underwater in the uh, Pacific uh, the Pacific Ocean, what they call the Ring of Fire. It was off Tonga. Yeah, I mean, that story is unbelievable. It impacted the entire world to the fact that it actually changed the jet stream. <laughs> it's, that, I'm, and, I should talk about added, that. Hmm? And, and it added, uh, I think I saw the same or read the same thing you did, and it added to the issue of climate change around the globe because... That water, when it uh, when it was pushed up by that uh, that earthquake, that undersea earthquake off Tonga, as you said down in the Pacific, uh, it went straight up. It was 55. Uh, how far did it go? Well, anyway, it's in the jet stream, and yeah, it was, and it hasn't come back down. So it was actually it was actually up in the upper stratosphere. It's never happened before. Yeah, it's not and, in the terraspheres, uh, in the stratosphere. There's like 100 million uh, Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of water up in the jet yeah. stream, which changes trajectory. I mean, it's an amazing story. And and the whole point of it is is that because of that, it's it's increased the 
the intensity of the sun now on the earth by at least two to three degrees. And no scientists on the planet, when they did the projections on climate change and, and how fast the climate's going to warm up and going to hurt us, no one projected that. How do you ever, you know, like that's such, such an anomaly. And everything had to come together perfectly, talk, listening to the New Zealand scientists talk about it. It all had to come together perfectly to make that water go that high. It, it was like it was just unbelievable where, you know, like how far it went. Yeah, and this so has got nothing think, this has got nothing to do with politics, right? This is actually something that happened yeah. and the impact is yeah. real. I'd love to get that scientist on. I heard him describe what went on, and it's not yeah. just about the amount of water in the stratosphere, yeah. it's about how far the uh, sound was heard and the impact yeah. underwater and you know, doing comparisons to Krakatoa and what have you. So it's a fascinating yeah. story. It really is. And uh, and, and he's in New Zealand. Uh, you can Google him. I'm sure you take a call. I mean, he was so accommodating on that interview I heard him on. It was just unbelievable what happened and how it's going to affect us forever. Because that whatever is up there is staying in that stratosphere. It doesn't leak from there. It just stays up there. Yeah. So it's just fascinating. But my other thing, a lot less fascinating, but really important to seniors this morning, and that is that in my email, I've got this thing from Bell uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, warning me that they're going to go to they're going to switch off paperless billing, and that's paperless billing from Alliance right into your mailboxes. And we have the oldest population per capita in the country. And as you get older, you know you have less patience with this kind of stuff. And I mean, like like I and others, I'm sure we all get calls from our mothers or our grandmothers asking us to come over and help us out to find a picture that someone was sending them from a loved one somewhere else in the world, and they want to know how to bring it up on their on their iPad. But trying to get them to go and pay on paperless billing, go on the internet and, and load that up, and then they've got about nine different levels of of activation to get that paperless billing to work. For a lot of people, that's very very trying. I might be exaggerating by nine. It might be only six, but I know there's a lot of stages that people have to go through. And most in our province don't have the interest nor the want to waste that kind of time to try and find their way through to putting their their uh, their credit card online and all the rest of it, especially these days when your credit card goes online. Where is it really going? Is that a lion notice or bill? Is that really from a lion or has that been copied by uh, by some scrupulous bunch of someone in the world trying to get your credit card number. And you don't want your seniors who are less familiar with, with, uh, with all this to be, uh, to be just putting their credit card out there anywhere at all. So when, so when I saw the notice, the first thing that came to my mind was all of our residents across the province, senior residents who a lot of them aren't as savvy as we would be using the Internet, and they don't want to be. Uh, you know, it came, came a long way after they would have been, you know, uh, in school learning all these things. So I'm going to suggest today to Alliance to immediately quash that. If people want to go and do paperless, they, or sorry, pay on the Internet, they can do it. They can go on and say, look, I'd rather switch over to my, to my phone or to my computer and just pay or pay it automatically. But, you know, other people who really want that bill, they want to look at it, go down over it, make sure there's nothing there and not belong to them. And they don't have to worry about the internet uh, or their internet being uh, uh, being uh, imposed upon by some unscrupulous crowd out there who can go in and, and steal everything from them. So, you know, it really opens up that whole issue that we have in our own healthcare system. We had out at the, the colleges and the university, and if they can't protect themselves from cybersecurity, how is my mother or your grandmother or someone out there going to do it? You know. 
that's the trick is you know how the information is stored how it's disseminated how it's protected because a lot of what we do in this world is online like for instance you know initially when online banking became part of the conversation I heard many people contact me here on this program and you know worried about having all that information digitally out there even though the Royal Bank wherever you deal with already had it digitized it's just the fact that you were able to do it yourself in the comfort of your own home but of course that's all covered 100% up to a certain amount of money by the CDIC so there's lots of places where there's protections in place to recoup losses but not everywhere I don't think Alliance is going to protect you if something happens to you because you go on and decide to uh, because you have to, because Bell is saying now, and I, and I would suggest to Bell, I, and I hope that people are listening or someone's going to contact them and say, you know, like a lot of these people want to be protected, but you guys can't protect us from those cybersecurity issues that can come up as soon as you put your credit card in and, and, and you have to be scammed. How, how many times have you looked at, at some, something coming in on your email and, and you look at it from Rogers? This happened last year, by the way, from Rogers. And it wasn't from Rogers. It was it was a cyber uh, group out there trying to steal your information. So they made up an ad, and Rogers, as soon as I called them on behalf of my mother, said, look, you know, what's going on here? I mean, she's paid her bill, and what's this about where you haven't paid your bill? You have to pay it right away So, uh, so and before you lose your service, so please put your, uh, your card number here, and we'll have it taken care of for you. And I called Rogers first and said, are you guys sending us stuff like that? I don't think you are. And the guy said, no, 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 that's actually – uh, a cyber terrorist that they're trying to get your information. And I said, that's what I thought. But what about all your customers out there? Don't you think you should go go in and, and put an ad on the air or somewhere across the Internet and, and out on the radio stations everywhere so these seniors in our community or others that think that it's real can suddenly know that it's not real? I mean, if you look, if there was a big gaping gap in the middle of the road going down tops of the road today, the city would be on there telling everybody there's a gaping or there's a big hole in the road. You better not take that area, go around it. But well, why don't companies like Rogers and that, when they know there's a cyber threat that's, that's out there and someone has copied all their information, the Rogers logo and everything, and put that out there, and there's people acting on it, thinking that it's actually from Rogers. So I don't like what Bell's done on this, sending it out, saying that they're going to uh, uh, scrap all their uh, paper billing and you're going to have to go to, to Internet, pay, uh, paying your bill by Internet. And I'm sure there's a lot of families around the province today when they hear this, that they'll say, "Got to better let mom know. Don't go on there and do that." But she's not too savvy when it comes to the internet. And I know, I know, lots of moms or grandmoms or older people that are, but there's just as many who aren't. I appreciate the time, Sean. Thanks a lot. Okay, okay. have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, Paul, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Is that me? You're talking to me. No problem. Hello. 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 Um, uh, I just wanted to say I'm having some problems here. I'm a disabled senior and I'm in constant pain. It's only been getting worse over the past 10 years or so. I've been a patient at the pain clinic, pain management clinic in Carpenter since 2006. I've requested to see a neurologist, yet I've been denied. The neurologist decided I should be referred to the pain management clinic, which I'm already there, and cancel the request without speaking to me, myself, or my physicians. My pain medication was reduced a few years ago through all that hoo-ha that was going on with uh, with the opiates and stuff, and I've never felt the same. The procedures at the clinic are not working for me, the lidocaine, the, the ketamine, the, the epidural steroid. 
at the beginning of November 2023, I had an MRI. I've had three appointments with the pain management doctor canceled. And the next schedule is for March 6th. Four months to get the results is just, to me, unacceptable. If the physician can't look after uh, his patients, he either has to take it on too much or should not be in such a position. I'm no longer interested in anything life has to offer, so I'm asking for someone for help. My only other option is is the MAID program, where um, um, you know the, the medical assisted dying, and uh, you know I just kind of at my wits end at this point. The pain is just getting so bad, I can't do anything. Uh, my life is. Uh, not good. It's hard on my my wife and everything else like that, and uh, I just don't know what to do anymore. You know, other than I've got all the papers filled out for the maid now, and I'm just ready to proceed with that. I'm obviously quite sorry and sad to hear of your troubles. When you say that you've got the paperwork organized, does that mean letters from doctors? No, I'm in the process of I've got the information and I filled out the forms, but nowhere in these forms does it say where I'm supposed to go, like to my back to my family doctor or whatever. So, um, all I have is an email address to send them to say, you know, I'm going to do this, and I got the forms all filled out. Um, it's just that you know I've had so much trouble with uh, trying to get some kind of uh, help. You know, I know there's people probably worse off in the world than I am. But, you know, this is my own personal little hell. And, um, you know, Eastern Health has gone as far as having me arrested and, and thrown me in the water for back in 2014. They called the RCMP because I was mad. And they called the RCMP and said, I, and said that I stated I was going to get guns and come back and shoot everybody. You might have remembered that back in 2014. I kind of do now. So what became of that? Uh... Nothing. I got uh, finally got a family doctor after that. I never went back to Old Perlican Hospital, and uh, I got a family doctor, and she's been very, very good. Um, uh, I was lucky to get her. I'm really pleased with her. And then I got in with the pain clinic at uh, Carbonair with uh, the anesthesiologist doctor there and that. And, you know, he uh, seems to be interested, but everybody seems to be in the last uh, two years grumpy and, and they don't want to talk to people. And, and like this is at Eastern Health, right? And, uh, um, you know, I, I'm like I said, I'm at my wit's end. And um, like I said, my other option, I don't know what to do. To try to get help, you know, like uh, who else can I call? I call Eastern Health, call Eastern Health. I called the pain clinic this morning and I got a message saying they don't take messages, but to call back later. Yeah, you have to start with your family doctor. And then if there's required uh, sign-off by additional specialists like a neurologist or psychologist or psychiatrist, I don't know your own personal situation, nor do I know what your family doctor is going to do, but that's the starting point for this uh -huh. process. So is there any place in government I can get other help other than Eastern Health for this? Do you not have a family doctor? I thought you said you have one who's... Yeah, I have a family doctor. She's, you know, she's not taking uh, visiting appointments now, so it's just a telephone call. So I will be talking with her in the morning. But I, I just wanted to kind of get this out here and, and, and see if maybe other people are having the same type of troubles with this kind of thing. Well, unfortunately, um, the answer is probably yes to that uh, serious question. But even through a phone call with your family doctor, that is legitimately the starting point. And I'm hesitant, if not loath, to try to give you any further advice on something as tricky and as complicated as your own situation and your thought that you might pursue medical assistance in dying. So. Uh, 
I'll leave it to your family doctor, but that's exactly where you should start. Phone call or otherwise. No, no you know, don't get me wrong. I don't want to die. I hope you don't. And I, but I, that's I, where. I'm on with this, but like with life and see what's coming down the pike. And I'm 68 years old, man. Uh, I had uh, an irate customer throw me down a set of stairs back in 1995 and, and messed up my spine. And uh, going back to the whole Perlican thing, by the way, it was a lie. I never said I would ever come up with guns or anything else like that. Um, you know, they came to my house with a SWAT team, man. <laughs> I had a gun point in my face. That's not me. <laughs> I would never hurt anybody. But anyway, um, I just wanted to get that out to you there and, and, and you know, and saying that uh, this is my situation. And uh, um, I just had to tell somebody, you know, I just... Uh, like I said, I'm 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 done, you know. So well, thanks for listening to me, Patty, and uh, you have a good day. I hope I still Patty didn't have better thing to talk about with you, but um, I'm uh, uh, like I said, I'm 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 done. Please do try to get whatever crisis help you need today, of which I'm ha- I don't know if you have uh, people to turn to or numbers for folks who are there for that exact reason, whether it be the simple one of 811 or 988 or just some of the like uh, organizations like Wellness Together. I'm happy to give you whatever information I can so that you can have some crisis-related conversations with mental health professionals today. Mm-hmm. Then, if you so choose, to pursue the conversation further with your family doctor, because this is obviously quite serious. Do you, would you like me to provide any of these, what I think can indeed be helpful numbers or people, points of contact for you right now? Yeah, sure. Okay. I'm going to, let's see here. I am going to pick on the, this particular group, but uh, 988, for one, is an emergency line crisis when people have uh, uh, suicide ideation, so I'll start with that. I'll also give you one that's going to be possible to uh, get 24-7 someone to talk to about very serious matters such as what we're discussing here today and I've had great success with others who I put on to wellness together so I'm going to give you their number uh, let's see here so and, and who is this now? This is, oh, this is wellness together if you're in immediate danger then of course it's 911 if you are thinking about suicide today the support oh, is available no, no, don't get me wrong I don't want to do this I don't want to do suicide I don't want to end up you know, in an ambulance going down to the water for no and I don't want to hear that either and this is not yeah. going to be the result of this call so I'm going to give you so it's uh, there's 988-811 and this one wellness together and it's a toll free number you can speak with the counselor 24-7 and it's one eight six. Six. Eight. Six. Six. Five. Eight. Five. Five. Eight. Five. Zero. Four. Um, zero. Four. Four. Five. Four. Five. Yep. Okay. So five. Eight. Five. Zero. Four. Four. Five. That's right. Okay. Um, so, thank you very much. So try that, and if there's anything else you think that I can help point you in a certain direction, I'm happy to try, but please do make that call, and please do follow up with your family doctor for some further guidance, and they're the right person to talk to about this. Okay. Thank you very much. I wish you well. Bye-bye. Bye, Paul. Uh, David, quick one before the news? Okay. Let's go. Line one. Marie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I just wanted to call in and make a comment on the gentleman who was talking about Bella Lines okay. and going paperless billing. I just wanted to let your people know that Rogers also does the same thing. I contacted them. 
concerning wanting a paper bill sent to me in the mail so I can go over the bill. And I was told, unless I'm 65 years of age or older, I cannot have it. Yeah, I, I suppose they make the arbitrary cutoff uh, at 65 for the obvious reasons. Sometimes I think it's a bit unfair because the implication is that people 65 plus can't navigate the Internet, which we know is complete malarkey for the vast majority of people listening to this program or across the country. So I'm not surprised to hear that Rogers is doing it because all these business trends and all the companies in various industries or sectors, they all kind of follow the leader, right? You know, they'll see a little test case for how one company is doing it and it was not too bad in the uh, arena of public backlash, they'll do the same thing. So I'm not surprised with this update from you. Well, it's funny that you said that because that's the exact same way our government runs. <laughs> hard, it's hard to argue that one. Uh, you got that right. Have yourself a good day, You Patty. too, Marie. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. Uh, okay, it's 11 o'clock. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show with a little change of pace here. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president and owner of Hockey Man Holdings Incorporated. He's known as the Wayne Gretzky of Wayne Gretzky Collectors. Originally from Whitburn, living in Fort McMurray, Alberta, is our friend Sean Chalk. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Good morning. So right off the bat, I uh, appreciate you making time for the show. I appreciate you making time for the show. Oh, my pleasure. I love doing it. So let's go back to the big wildfire in Fort McMurray and the focus that you had to give to your collection. Maybe just actually describe your collection as best you can before we get into how you had to deal with the wildfire. Well, the collection at its peak was the the biggest, uh, most comprehensive collection of Wayne Gretzky's game-used memorabilia in the world, including, you know, the Hockey Hall of Fame and his private collection. Um, to put it in perspective, I put it on display in 2010, and Wayne came to see it. And it took two trucks and two trailers uh, and a crew an entire day to set it up and display it uh, for him to, to look at it. What's an approximate value of your collection? Oh, God. Well, I mean, real at its peak, it, big. I mean, I typically don't even don't even think about that or talk about it because it's really not not the important part of what i do but but it, you know significant value if you, if you just follow it online it's significant value so what is important about what you do then sean um i mean the important part of what i do is is that first and foremost it's a hobby and the good thing about a hobby and, and collecting is there's always something to chase and in that process you get to meet an awful lot of people from all walks of life in your pursuit of pieces for the collection and whatnot. So you gain a lot of uh, reach and you make a lot of friends along the way. And I guess that's what makes any hobby and any and any search and quest that, you know, fun. So that that's the best part for me, the people and, and the, the journey along the way. Yeah, I'm not going to pressure on the value, but we do know that even things like Gretzky rookie cards from 79 are really valuable. I mean, I think there was one sold at auction at over $3 million. So, I mean, that just goes without saying. Do you have a prize possession in your collection? You know, I get asked that question a lot, and um, it's probably not what you think. It's it's not the material things. I, I, uh, I actually have a photo album. Um, of, of all the photos and whatnot of, of some of my engagements and, and encounters and when I played hockey with Wayne in his camp in Phoenix and things like that. So the most valuable piece for me is that album. It's the memories. It's the, you know, those, those things that, that I can look back on and, and, and smile about. 
that's fantastic. I love that. Let's go back to the wildfire in 2016. I mean, with that type of collection, regardless of value, the sentimental value, the memories that it holds for you, when the fire was began to rage and evacuation orders were put in place, what kind of scramble did you have to encounter? Uh, that, that was crazy. Um, when, that, when that first happened, I, I was uh, a few miles away from my house in a meeting, and when we left that morning, you know, there was smoke in the distance, that, but it was basically a 30-something degree sunny day, and I went to a meeting. And we were concerned about the fire, but not concerned enough to stay home and start packing sort of thing. And uh, I was wrapping up the meeting on my phone. My wife phoned and said, you got to come home. We're being evacuated. we got to get out. And I, I walked out of the client's house, and I looked up in the sky, and it was like Armageddon. It was just black. It was like the world had changed instantly from when I went into the meeting to when I received the call. And my, my manager, who was with me at the time for my company, uh, he says, well, I'll come help you because he had no evacuation order in his area of town. So we booted it to my place and uh, picked up kids out of school on the way, and, and we got here and we said, come on, we, we only have minutes. So we, we gave each of the kids, my wife had a bag by the door for each of them and said, we got five minutes, guys, pack your stuff. And uh, my manager and I went to my office and we threw down empty hockey bags and I said to him, I said, start emptying the display cases. And he's busting open display cases and literally just cramming these significant value jerseys, piling them up into into hockey bags and things. And I'm dumping the safes and all my hockey cards and things and putting it into another bag. And we go out and we literally just throw it in the back of the truck uh, with everything else. And we left. And, uh, you know, we left into, into the driving in the fire kind of thing it was it was a crazy 10 minutes I, I no doubt it was uh, so just backtracking to the collection a little bit so do you have some Gretzky related memorabilia back to whether it be Sault Ste. Marie or Indianapolis or obviously the Oilers in his heyday but the Kings the Blues the Rangers do you have from all facets of his hockey career or even in his minor minor years yeah I did I, I mean I, I've owned it all I, as a matter of fact I used to one of the big things I collected uh at the height of my collecting days was his game used sticks and i think i owned around 400 of them over the years but the most i've ever lined up in a row on the wall was around a hundred and they they were in chronological order so it's it's pretty neat looking at his sticks from junior and and when he was a kid to his coaching days and in phoenix and looking at the you know the progression of the sticks and the height changes and the pattern changes and things like that so I've had stuff right from his childhood uh, right to, to current day, really. Got anything from the World Juniors in 1978? In the, the one thing I owned from there, well, two things, actually. I owned a couple of the sticks he played with in that tournament. But in that tournament, he, uh, he wore two jerseys, a white one and a blue one. And I, I used to own the blue one very, for a very brief period. I think you wore number nine at the World Juniors, right? He did, yeah. Okay, so that's all fascinating to me. When you talk about the sticks, so what kind of stick was he using in junior? Because he's pretty famous for using that Titan with a fairly straight blade for most of his pro career. Yeah, he used he used Titan, you're right, from, from his time uh, in the Oilers, you know, right from WHA Oilers right into the after the first season with the LA Kings. It was all Titan. But, you know, as a young kid playing on the pond in the backyard rink, it was, you know, Hesplers and things. The, the variety of sticks back in those days wasn't, you know, wasn't as vast. Um, but, you know, he's, 
he's used Sherwood uh, before, and he's used Coho, but all of those sticks were for briefer periods of time. He's most, you know, famous. He made Titan famous, and after that, it was that Silver Easton shaft in L.A. that he made famous. So those were his big ones. But you know, he's he's dilly dallied around with some of the other brands through his through his life for sure. Let's get into the story that is really catching wildfire in the world of hockey card or hockey card collectibles and collectors. And that's the unopened case of 1979 OPG hockey cards somewhere in Saskatchewan, a family found it. So the guesstimate is that it may include upwards of 25 Gretzky rookie cards. What does the hockey card collector in you think about this particular find? Well, you know, you know, it's definitely uh, newsworthy. It's it's pretty crazy in the hockey card world to find an unopened case um, of seventy nine eighty OPG hockey cards. There are quite a few boxes have survived over the years, unopened boxes found in stores and attics and things like that. But to find a case, nobody thought that would ever happen. And it's an interesting story because the guy who had it was a collector like the rest of us, you know, buying hockey cards in the 70s and 80s and opening them up and making his sets and chewing the bubble gum. And and that year was not unlike any different, but he had the money to buy two cases that year. So he opened up one case and uh, built his sets and whatnot, and he put the other case in the basement and basically forgot about it. And, you know, after a while... He saw it there, and the, the packaging actually says 1980 because that's the way OPG labeled their cards back then. So right. 79 would read 1980. So he didn't even, in looking at the case upon discovery, didn't even realize it was Gretzky's rookie year that, that he had there. Until a buddy of his said, you really should look at these cards and make sure what you, you have there is not actually 79.80. And, of course, sure it was. Um, and, and when he made that discovery, of course, it was it was massive massive news because a box of these cards you know has gone for a couple of hundred thousand dollars us a single box and you got to remember when you're buying an unopened box of product that's sealed you're not typically buying it to open it because that would be silly what you're paying for is the mystery of wondering what's in that box because you're right you know, in, in that case, there's typically, on average, 1.7 rookie cards in a box. There's 16 boxes. So he should hit around 27 rookie cards in the case. But the odds of having a rookie card come out of that case that's in such good condition that you're ever going to hit, you know, the, the record numbers that Gretzky rookie cards have sold for is virtually impossible. I mean, cards get graded. So the first thing you'd have to do with these cards is submit them to PSA, the California company that grades them, and let it receive a, a score out of 10. Now, to put it in perspective, there are thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of Gretzky rookie cards in the system that are graded. Only two have ever achieved a score of 10. Mm-hmm. Two. So the odds of finding another 10 in that box probably not going to happen so what you're holding on to is the fact that it's the only sealed case and that there just might be a perfect card in there but you'll never know because the buyer will never open it so do you have a bid in <laughs> it's it, it got out of my league fast i checked this morning and it's currently sitting at just over two million dollars us which as we know is 
a lot closer to three million Canadian dollars than it is two. And so are you saying that if you had a bid in and you were successful, you wouldn't even open it to see what was in it? Absolutely not. The value is in the fact that it's sealed and complete. Amazing. So the 1979 NHL draft, Rob Ramage went first overall. Not a huge name, but was a solid defenseman for quite a long time. Then there's people like Mike Gartner, Ricky Vive, uh, Ray Bork is a 79 first rounder. Down the list, you find the, like the Brian Props, Brad McCrivens of the world, Michelle Goulet, Hall of Famer. So there's some pretty attractive cards potentially in there. Well, actually, those guys were drafted that year, but they wouldn't have received a rookie card till a year later. But now, wouldn't, mo- like these days, the drafted rookies, whether it even be a shot at camp, get into the hockey card collections, don't they? Now they do. Back then, they didn't. Okay. Fair enough. Because back they had to wait. They had, you know, the, the systems, the, the technologies weren't as advanced, and the photography and stuff wasn't as advanced. So they waited till the next season, got some game action, and then that then the process of putting together card sets uh, came came into light. But in the 79-80 set where Gretzky's card is, it's the only card of value. There's not another card in there worth anything. Amazing. What's, uh, what's on your wish list, your want list? You know, I'm not sure that there is anything on it uh, because I managed over the course of the years to acquire so many things that I never thought it was even possible to own that um, to have something on my my wish list after what I accomplished was almost selfish. <laughs> you know, I just take it as it comes. Um, I don't really go hunting for too much. It typically just shows up or finds me. Is there any other player that you collect outside of Gretzky? Not with the same passion. I mean, I've hung on to a few. I, I have actually, funny, because it's a Newfoundland connection, Darren Langdon. Um, I can call a friend, but uh, I, I have about 12 of his career game-worn jerseys spanning from his junior days to his last jersey he ever wore, I think, or one of the last ones. But I've got jerseys from every team he's played on that he's worn. And, and with keeping the Newfie connection alive, I do have a really nice collection of Alex Faulkner items, including the only known jersey of his that, that survived uh from the early 60s that he wore in the NHL. That's fantastic. So was the last jersey Langdon wore a, a Devil's jersey? Yes, I believe it to be, yep. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a fascinating conversation. I'm really glad you made time for the show. Uh, stay in touch. Uh, regardless of whether or not we see what happens with this uh, 79 OPG, any other time you want to talk about the world of collectibles. You know, some people are even just, you know, everyone has different kind of hobbies. So someone just wrote to me, says, hockey card collecting is bizarre to me. It's not to me because it's something we did as children, but because a hobby is a very individual thing. It's not supposed to be one size fits all and everyone's going to be intrigued or attracted to the same types of hobbies you know a stamp collector might never consider a hockey card and vice versa absolutely and it's, it's whatever makes you happy that's that, that's what a collection and a hobby is all about it's something you can be passionate about something you can chase and something you can enjoy and what you enjoy the next guy doesn't but that doesn't make it wrong when did you get your Gretzky ink where, where did I get my Gretzky no ink? when uh, 2018 <laughs> fantastic Sean really enjoyed the conversation I'm glad you called Thank you. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Sean Chalk is the president and owner of Hockey Man Holdings Incorporated, the most comprehensive Gretzky collection in the world. (laughs) Good stuff. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jackie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, 
there's a gentleman that calls in all the time and talks about books, and I love listening to him. I have a book that I was hoping to get hold of him so he could give me some advice on what to do with it. What, kind of, been, what kind of book do you have? 1895 Oxford Teacher's Bible. What year, sorry? 1895. Wow. That's pretty cool. Where'd you get that? Uh, it was my husband who's a senior. It was his grandmother's, and he doesn't know where she got it from there. What kind of shape is it in? Um, I'll say medium. Okay. It's sitting in a plastic bag in a drawer for at least 20 years that I'm at it. So I'm thinking it's not doing any good in a... Like, what do you do with it? Do you give it to a priest? Do you... Yeah, it's very illustrated. The illustrations are just amazing. Let's see here. Now, I I don't know. I believe you're talking about Ted, who called yesterday about a book. And I'll put you on hold, and I'll get... Uh, we'll ask Ted if we can share your his contact information with you. He'd probably say yes, because he's that kind of fella. But I would also suggest that maybe, you know, get someone in the world of books and an archivist to help you. So whether that be someone at Memorial University's library, whether it be someone at the room, someone like Greg Walsh, who might be able to point you in a direction to find an appropriate home for a book like that. Yeah, I'm not trying to sell it. I want to give it to somebody. Yeah, sounds great. So I would call the rooms, ask for Greg Walsh. He's the provincial archivist at the museum. So maybe he'll give you much better advice than I can. I'd start there. There's also an archive department at Memorial University, which might be helpful as well. So between those two entities, I think you're going to find the home you want for this book. And the other thing is um, I have um, my husband's great-grandfather, if I have this correct. He was a, a train conductor, and he invented the speedometer for the train, the locomotive. We had the patent that he was paid $3.50 for. There's a check that he was given, and we have all his drawings that he was, when he was inventing this. And I thought, there's got to be a place to find that at home as well. Yeah, I mean, and that'd be something I would also bounce off Mr. Walsh and or, as I mentioned, the archivists at Memorial University. But these, those are two fascinating pieces of history that you have. Yeah, and like, I mean, kids these days, like our kids and our grandkids, nobody's interested in any of it. I mean, I mean nobody's religious or would appreciate the Bible or any of the old stuff, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to think, you know, inside, now that we've got all these problems at the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation, I don't know if there's anyone that could help you of any assistance on that front. But start with Greg Walsh, because he's got his finger to the pulse of uh, the world that you're describing. So maybe, just maybe, he'll be able to help. If you don't get any satisfaction or get the kind of answers you're looking for from either the rooms or memorial, get back to me and I'll go. Uh, I'll dig a little deeper for you to see if we can find the proper place for that book and the patent. The Ruins, R-U-I-N-S. No, the Rooms, R-O-O-M-S, the museum here at Fort Townsend. Yeah, see, we're um, we're at Mary's town. So that's okay. A phone call will will do. And if there's any further action taken, you, I'm sure Mr. Walsh can help uh, organize that. But I still would love to get hold of this guy with the old books. He fascinates me. 
Yeah, no problem. I love listening to them. The only thing we're going to have to do, though, is this is our normal process here, is when people are looking for contact information like that, then we go ahead and ask them whether or not they're willing and wanting to share. So what I'll ask Dave Williams to do is, Dave, can we see if Ted is willing to share his uh, number with uh, Jackie? And if so, then Dave or or myself will give you a call and give you the number. How's that? Okay, thanks so much. We can do it. Appreciate the time, Jackie. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Rooms. There we go. Yeah, call the rooms. I mean, Greg Walsh, people like that, you know, are professional archivists. They will certainly have much more information at a fingertip than I would on uh, requests like that. Let's check in on the Twitter before we get to the news. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address uh, is openline.vocm.com. But our favor is when you join us live on the program. Now, I said that Tom Davis was on the ballot with Greg Smith running in the by-election of Ward 4 here in the city of St. John's. Apparently, and unbeknownst to me, there's another candidate. And we're happy to have him on. That's Miles Russell. He's right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to another candidate running in Ward 4 here in the city of St. John's by-election. That's Miles Russell. Miles, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, uh, despite the bad weather. Uh, yep, so my name is Miles Russell. And I'm announcing my candidacy for Ward 4 in the upcoming by-election on Tuesday, March 12th. So this is an announcement just being made now, is it, Miles? Yep, you uh, are part of about seven posts that just went out. You're not a post, you're the radio, but all the same thing to me. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you making time. So uh, why run in Ward 4? What's on the top of your agenda? Or your so, platform, I suppose, is a better word. Pardon me. So my platform is that the most of the issues people have can we boil down to essentially our regulations, both engineering manuals, development regulations. They're the root cause of most of our issues, whether it's cost overruns for a bike lane or a road infrastructure projects, intersection being laid out in a different manner, the way we propose traffic management instead of transportation management. Those are the core infrastructure, and my career has led me down a path to understand that my background in civil engineering technology design work, uh, that is essentially understanding specs and regulations to a hard degree, and that's what I want to focus on. I do advocacy work. Uh, I run a not-for-profit called Streets Over People. Uh, we do basically urban planning um, consulting and, and uh, analysis using GIS. And I'm also a civil designer consultant anyway and a project manager. So it's my career to analyze policy and look at our regulations and infrastructure guidelines, engineering manuals, and they can be changed. So we change those, we get a better city. You and I have spoken before. We spoke about uh, traffic flow considerations when we talk about designing roads. We did, and roundabouts. And usually I call in once every three or four months to talk about some really, really nitty-gritty engineering design. (laughs) So, look, obviously it's important because the way with which the city, traffic flow, roundabouts, uh, any other easing issues that are brought forward, it just makes a big difference. Do you think, though, Miles, given that focus, that it might be over the heads of some people and their concerns might be with the 13% increase in my property tax, what have you. So how do you branch out from it to make it more attractive to the everyday regular voter who thinks about things that might not be about traffic volume, traffic flow, and all those types of things? And I'm not trying to put it down because driving around the city is absolute madness, and I'm pretty sure we haven't done a great job in exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So essentially... When you look at how our built environment is constructed, that all has a cost associated with it. So you look at, say, 
up in Galway, they've just built a couple roads. Those roads are very expensive. They're around eight to ten thousand dollars a meter per meter. That's two arm. That's what half an arm's length. Um, well, one arm. <laughs> so the that type of road is not needed. It's it's vastly large. It's vastly complicated. There's no public transit factored into the design. Um, so if we can reduce the cost of construction, we reduce the cost of maintenance, and then we reduce the cost of the basically the burden of infrastructure maintenance for residents. So you talk about something like, you know, the city does release its report on uh, housing requirements. I believe they called it the um, – oh, what's the report called? Um, just bear with me a second now. The Yeah, housing needs assessment. So that document there goes over uh, a long-term statistical analysis of all the residents, and what we see is clear. People can't afford to live. The homes are too big. People want to downsize. Families are smaller, and our development regulations do not cater to those people. I know many people, and you probably do too, Patty, who would love to buy a house, but we don't build anything that's smaller than 2,500 square feet with a two-car garage, and it costs $450,000. So I'm, I'm totally fine with people who own those houses. That's excellent. But when we have seniors who want to downsize and families who want to afford a smaller home, our development regulations need to change. And you can't just build a smaller home in a, in a tighter community. You need to build leaner infrastructure. We don't need 25-meter-wide roads for a residential street. <laughs> yeah, you don't <laughs> so need Ennis Avenue everywhere. You know, I think some regulations are going to change organically here, given some of the caveats associated with the Housing Accelerator Fund. There's more talk, thankfully, about population density when we're going to build new homes here. Like, there's a 10-story apartment building going to be built for the first time ever in this city because what people don't necessarily realize is that building out as opposed to building up comes with significant costs, whether it be just the roads themselves water, sewer, fire services, you know, and then snow clearing and salt and everything else. I mean, building out has turned into be a really terrible idea. Then you talk about expanding cost of public transit and everything else associated with the amenities that need to be close by for any reasonable, manageable lifestyle. So building out, hopefully and thankfully, that's not been part of the conversation. We're actually talking about density, which I think is good. Uh, now, yep. it comes with some concerns, given your professional background too, about congestion and traffic flow, but it certainly comes with a significantly lower cost than building out. Oh, 100%. So one of the metrics we use, there's there's many boring metrics that no one wants to hear about, like lane kilometer service costs and things like that. But when it comes down to it, if you, say, have a road like Ladysmith Drive in Kenmount Terrace, uh, that road, very wide, very expensive, high speeds, the apparent lane width is wide, all that notwithstanding, you're right. The number of houses per linear meter is one per, I think it's nine meters. Rabbit Town is one per four. So Rabbit Town, and the best part is it's illegal to build Rabbit Town. We're not allowed to build Rabbit Town or Georgetown anymore. The city won't allow it. Um, it can meet regulations nationally. It's just not part of the city's code. Why? It's one of the most lean operational areas of the city. Um, you know, demographic issues aside, in terms of the functional development, you know, if we build more developments like that, it's better. And when it comes to density, you can look at cities – not going to go international here, but like Tokyo and Houston, the way they develop their cities don't use restrictive zoning like we do. Most of Canada's restrictive zoning, they use a more hierarchical, hierarchical zoning, pardon my word, um, where you would say you can build a house anywhere you want, but you can't build a coal power plant next to a school. We don't need zoning to do that. We just need rules set up. So we could say, hey, we can put up a 17-story high-rise building as long as that high-rise building isn't directly adjacent to people's houses. Make some basic geometry assumptions, but that's not what's done right now. Right now, 
every single development that is not a single detached home goes through council approval. I've been down there. I do develop for what like, I, this is what I do in project management and, and project design work. I'm down in city hall, listening to city deliberate over individual buildings, literally individual buildings that they don't do that in other big cities. It's not necessary. So leaner regulations, better regulations mean we can reduce the tax burden on citizens and build a better, not just ward four, but the city in general. But if we can start a ward four, why not? I, I appreciate you making time for the show. Anything else you'd like to add to the potential voters before we say goodbye? Uh, just pop over to the website at uh, voterussell.ca. That's uh, two S's and two L's. Um, and you can follow me on social media. Our social media um, links are going to be on that website. Uh, you can read a pretty in-depth breakdown of um, policy work uh, and what my campaign, I guess, is running on for a platform. And also go to posts I've made uh, and you know design work questions and things like that. Yeah, and I appreciate the time, and I'll be calling in again, Patty. I look forward to it, Miles. Uh, good luck out there. All right, cheers. Thank you. Have good a good day. Bye-bye. Miles Russell is the third candidate running on the ballot in the by-election for Ward 4, of course, joining Greg Smith and Tom Davis. I'm going to wait to take Tony after the break because we're nudging up against it. I don't want to shortchange him. What we're going to discuss is the most recent report coming from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. So there was conversations with that group talking about the CBA loan extension, the CBA loan deadlines, the numbers of businesses that were probably teetering because of the inability to access that forgivable amount of money. Now they've got another uh, report out there. And it's similar and has some distinct overlaps with what Miles Russell was just talking about. And that's about red tape and regulatory issues. So they've looked across the country at best practices and they break it down into three categories to come up with an overall grade or score. So 40% is based on regulatory accountability. Good one. Second, 40% goes to regulatory burden. Then one, I think, which is critically important to address the first two, is political priority, which is valued at 20%. The provinces that get the best grade in this red tape report include Alberta and Nova Scotia. Both get A grades. Ontario, an A minus, BC, a B plus. Quebec, a B, Saskatchewan, a B. New Brunswick, C. Federal government, interestingly, gets a C, and not surprisingly. PEI, a C. Newfoundland and Labrador, an F. Manitoba, apparently not applicable. Why, we don't know, but F is should be a concern to all because it's not just about the businesses that are trying to cut through the endless red tape and the endless bureaucracy. It comes with an economic impact as well. So we're going to be joined by Tony Wakeham, who's the official leader of the official opposition, and he's also the PC member for Steamville Port Report right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. So good morning to the PC member for Steamville Port Report. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey. Good morning, Patty. Just wanted to talk about the recent report, as you said in your preamble, from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, which basically gives Newfoundland and Labrador the only province to get an F grade in in their report, and that should be alarming to everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador that a uh, organization like Canadian Federation of Independent Business says that we have excessive burden of red tape. Now we didn't need the Canadian Federation of Independent Business to tell us that for those people that are trying to do business in this province of ours they have been talking about this for a number of years now I mean you hear the stories constantly from business people who talk about the nightmares they've had in trying to deal with the provincial government in their dealings with service NL we've heard from farmers and the challenges that they're facing in trying to get through the so-called red tape we've heard it about in childcare spaces about the red tape being a big barrier 
Uh, and even in 2020, the Mills report, which was commissioned by the Liberal government uh, and consulted with local businesses, and one of their greatest challenges found that, quote, the problem this regulatory regime was raised in almost every interview. So again, this is something that the province, that the Liberal government has known about, and yet we do not see the improvements that one would expect to see. There's been some cooperation throughout the Atlantic province. I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's <clears throat> just an example of where when you cut through some red tape and what it can mean, for instance, with the mobility of doctors. This just made sense. Can, can you point to any specifics where you think there's either duplicative work and or overlap or redundancies where people are having to do the same thing more than once to get the same outcome approval? Well, I think that the part of that problem, and, and of course, to refer back to your uh, previous comment about the doctor situation, our score would have been much worse if it hadn't been for that, apparently. Yeah. The, uh, the thing that uh, concer- concerns me is the number of uh, different agencies and hoops that businesses seem to have to go through. We talk a lot about mega projects in this province of ours, and so we should. We have vast uh, natural resources that we need to take full advantage of using our own workers, of course, and maximizing the benefits. But small independent businesses are the backbone to our province. And when you hear businesses talk about six months delay in getting a permit approved and, and some of the issues around the whole Crown lands piece, the municipalities talking about development in their communities and the frustration with getting access to Crown lands for businesses to expand or or businesses to start up. All of these stories keep coming in over and over and over again, and it appears that it's like there one department will say one thing, another department will say something else, and there's someone else. And then what happens a lot of times is you could have an application in on, in government, and it could be sitting on that on a person's desk waiting for some formal uh, review to be done. And if that person happens to be away, that doesn't move. That just sits there. Uh, for three weeks or so. So these are the kind of things that are frustrating, that things that can be reviewed, that should be reviewed. You know, it's about process and how we turn around and actually improve that process. And that happens by going out and talking to independent business people, talking to people who are working in the system and talking about how we can improve it. Yeah, because we're not throwing caution to the wind and removing all regulatory issues because that creates a second set of problems. But when it's more onerous than it need be, for one, one thing, it would be just the frustration experienced by an individual or a business trying to advance their needs. And secondly, if indeed people realize that it's as tough out there and as cumbersome as it is, investment dollars might stop flowing, which is the major concern here. It's one thing to be angry and frustrated. It's quite another to not know really how many projects, especially out of province money, might not have come to our shores based on the fact that we get Fs on report cards like this because people with money to invest, they have no interest, zero interest in trying to fight and swim upstream all the time to try to get to an eventual approval. Absolutely, and again, when you think about all of the all of the creativity, all of the entrepreneurship that exists in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, people that want to start up a small business, people that want to expand their small business, people that want to hire that second or third or fourth or fifth employee, these are the type of industries we're talking about. These are the backbone, and what we have to be doing as a government is saying, how do we minimize the impact on your business? Because if government is directly responsible for you not being able to open your business for months 
then we have a problem. And I find it ironic, though, at the same time as we're talking about this, the minister was out the other day without doing their due diligence for a photo op to announce a rideshare program that they clearly did not do their due diligence on, as we had just talked about. This is not about not doing your due diligence. This is about doing it right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how they broke down the overall score, you know, the 240s, when in fact the final 20% really seems like the most important part to me. Like, I, it's not up to me to tell the CFIB what to do, but if we're looking at political priority category, you know, if we are trying to measure what they call clear indications of uh, regulatory modernization, because that's the cart. If we do it well there, if we see forward momentum there and a measured reduction of red tape, then you get the other two right. It's just, you know, one goes with the other. So it's a little bit odd that they signed at 20 of the overall 100% when, in fact, if that was 50% and you could actually measure that governments were advancing the cause here, then the other two would take care of themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And in that particular category, as you know, our province uh, wound up with a D grade, which basically means less than satisfactory performance. So there's another example of a government that has an opportunity to change things but didn't do it. And all of the other pieces would fall in place if that priority was there by government to do just that. Yeah, and I'm guessing that D is pretty much directly associated with the move made Atlantic uh, Canadian uh, regarding mobility of doctors because that seems to be how that falls into that particular category. And just for a bit of context, when we talk about regulatory accountability, which is a bit of a moving target, our our overall score is 3.0 versus, say, for instance, Alberta, 8.9, Nova Scotia, 8.8, Ontario, 8.4. You know, sometimes politicians are loath to admit shortcomings in the system, when in fact, I think the more appropriate political calculation is we acknowledge it and we do something about it. You know, because, for instance, all the regulatory issues aren't born of the Fury Liberals. Some of these things have been in place for successive governments. So just getting it right. If there's a political win available, you don't have to cower and hide away because you've got a bad report card. you just got to do something to show the general public you understand what the grade means, and here's what we're going to do to change it. And that's exactly why I've talked about under my leadership and, and what we will do as a PC government is do exactly that, review exactly what we're doing. It's not about simply coming in and continuing to do what you've always done. We have to be committed to making those changes, to be actually looking and talking to people and saying, how can I help you hire three more people or four more people as a small business? It's not about putting up roadblocks. It's about taking them down. And that's exactly what we need to be doing as a government. That's exactly what I intend to do. You know, some government measures that are, you know, intended to encourage more hiring of people, expanding the business, whether it be through marketing or what have you. I read a fascinating opinion piece in the Post uh, not long ago by Jim Belsilly, who people might recognize. We're kind of on an all antiquated path of economic improvement, aren't we? We're talking about the, you know, the sticks of it all when we just put more people in the workforce and what economic value comes from it. Of course, basically it comes with your ability to pay your own bills and taxes paid to government, but the real value, and I think in an economy like ours, when we're talking about natural resources, whether it be mining or oil or anything else, the real economic value is in intellectual property. You know, we've got to change how we think about where the real value lies because data is valuable. We don't do enough in this country to move towards patent and IP creation and how to monitor 
monetize IP because that's the big new world. That's what's out there. Canada is so far behind in the amount of patents that we file for things like data collection, data uh, dissemination, and what have you. That's the economy of the future. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that because I think we're dealing with an antiquated style of trying to either artificially or to try to uh, aid economic growth. Absolutely. I mean, yesterday I met with TechNL and had a meeting with with those folks and the amazing work that they're doing and the tremendous opportunities that we talked about in that particular sector that could add value to everything that we're doing in this province. And so it's it's about uh, realizing that as a province, we have so much to offer. And I think if COVID taught, taught, taught us anything, it was that people can live anywhere they want because the new way of doing things allows us to be able to work from home or work from, you know, it's not about everybody having to be in an office building in Toronto or Montreal or anywhere like that anymore. So we've really got to t- take advantage of that. And and the people at Tech NL are doing some of that work already. But to go back to your point, I've always said, and I always use this line a lot, it says, in God we trust, everybody else requires data. Because data is the key to making sound decisions that will improve people's lives. We've done a pretty good job in this country of uh, researching, developing, not so much with monetizing the IP, and that is absolutely the future. I'd suggest that everybody should try to search out that particular opinion piece because the points being made are really quite valid. Some of the you know go-to moves from provincial and federal governments over the years, all about trying to add jobs to the workforce, doesn't necessarily add economic value to the overall measurements, whether it be GDP or CPI, whatever you want to use because things have changed and it's online and it's artificial and we've got to get in get in line with the other countries that we're competing with even if we are a small to medium-sized power we still have a big economy and we haven't really grappled with the future uh tony i know that was a bit of an aside and also at the cfib we talked about uh interprovincial trade barriers which is causing or costing canadians billions of dollars per year maybe we'll get your thoughts on that the next time we speak i'll give you another few seconds before i run out of time well again uh patty just to just to back it up that uh, this is an op- these reports give us an opportunity to recognize that we need to do better and that you know after eight years we haven't done better and that's what uh, comes home to me we need to find a way to support uh, businesses we need to find a way to support people entrepreneurs who want to invest in our in our province and to want to make things better and knocking down barriers that interfere with that needs to happen but we always need to do due diligence of course and do our homework appreciate the time tony thank you patty take care bye-bye Bye. Yeah, that whole world of data-driven economic value is, is really a good read. All right, uh, big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. We're here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.